Guess what, Brooke? Should I ask? Have you heard that ProApps and Graphics have jumped on board this season as a sponsor? Really? They wrap race cars, right? Yeah, and also corporate vehicles too. Hang on, I'm checking out their website. Damn, these wraps are sexy. You should get your Formula Ford wrapped here. Already booked. For those in need of a new wrap on their car, ProApps is offering $200 off motorsport wraps if any listeners mention on the couch with Hooli. That's a pretty sweet deal for those with an open wheeler, tin top, prod sports, GT, and anything motorsports related, really. Sure is. Check out the show notes for further details on the Catch with Hooli fans. We would also love to thank our major sponsor, Thrifty Car Rental, for supporting the show this season. You will hear more about them in future episodes. G'day, I'm Dan Hooley-Hollihan and welcome to my motorsports podcast up on the Couch with Hooley Season 2, which is more than just a motorsports podcast. My guests are from all sides of the track, eras and personalities. You will meet some who have spent their careers chasing the dream to those who have only just touched on it and went on to aspiring journeys. We learn their stories beyond the helmet. To open Season 2 of On the Couch with Hooley, we've got Jimmy Vernon. He's raced everything from motorbikes to carts to Formula Fords, GTs, and has even raced in the TCR Touring Car Series. Well, that's enough from me, so let's hear it from the man himself, Jimmy Vernon. Jimmy, how are you, man? Mate, I've been good. It's been too long uh, in between conversations with you, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. With you, last week you were racing in Queensland, weren't you? I was, yeah, around two of the Australian Production Cars Championship. Yeah, how did it go for you? Was it all, was it very relaxing or was it tense in the atmosphere or? It was a pretty good weekend. Uh, we had a lot of upgrades to the car before we went to, East, um, after Eastern Creek, before we went to Queensland. Uh, we basically threw the kitchen sink at the car because we weren't quite happy with it. And uh, it was stressful because we went in to the event without testing the car. So we didn't know what we were going to have, uh, but we came out with in practice one fast and the biggest thing for us was looking after tire degradation which was a massive problem for us at the first round uh, and after we went out for practice one the boys looked at the tires and went i reckon we're on here so yeah from then on it was a pretty cruisy weekend yeah where did we so with you we'll, we'll go we'll go back a bit where did you actually grow up in sydney i lived in moralia yeah. so uh out in the hawkesbury i've pretty much lived there my whole life i still live there now but yeah i uh didn't really grow up in in the big city or anything like that i sort of lived out in a rural area mm. uh went to a school about 10 minutes from home and it's pretty much where i spent most of my life we had five acres so i was lucky in a way because i was riding motorbikes at the time and had plenty of room to go out there and have fun yeah so with you were you going out with like the hawksbury is famous for like sprint car drivers and stuff like that do you have like that were you growing out near the dumsies and whatnot I actually lived about five minutes down the road from the Dumsneys and uh, we were quite good family friends. Uh, We would see them at the pub every now and then and then their boys got into motorbikes as well. Mm. We went and did a couple motocross races together and we got along quite well and, and, you know, we've sort of been crossing paths again in motorsport and we always say g'day when we see each other. But, yeah, we um, it was about 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes down the road from them. Who would you ride with, though? Was it was it with Marcus, Matt, Mitch? Who Matt, was, like, the one that you rode with the most? Matt started – so it actually started with my sister was really good friends with Michaela. They went to school together. And I um, 
sort of started riding and, and Matt got into, it was like he's very, when he first started riding motorbikes and I was super young. Uh, and then as I was, I was still in primary school. Yeah, I was still mm. in primary school when they first started riding motorbikes. And it's funny that I remember all this stuff. But uh, then I think as Matt got a little bit older, Marcus started riding a yeah. little bit. I don't ex- I don't actually know how much Marcus got into it, but it was cool to see, was it last year he won the Australian title? Marcus, yeah, yeah, yeah. he won yeah. the Aussie title. Yeah, yeah and Matt, that was, won, Matt won the last Parramatta Speedway race. Wow, yeah, it was just crazy. Like I remember, this is such a weird thing to remember, yeah. but when I was super, super young, and Marcus is a couple years younger than me, I remember him being quite a young kid, and I was at their house a few times, and you know they'd be you know riding motorbikes or whatever because he was. We went to school together, but he was a few years below me, and it was it blew my mind to see all of social media just erupt when he won that Australian title, and I was like, that is so cool that I actually like knew that kid when he was yeah. quite young, um, and I'm real happy for him. We don't talk too much. I haven't really spoken to him since I was at school, but it's really cool to see Marcus doing so well. Yeah. So who were you in school with Matt or Marcus though? Matt's a couple of years above me yeah. and Marcus is a couple of years below me. So I was yeah. kind of in this weird middle ground, but because my sister was was really close with Michaela, it was sort of just the whole family side. It came together a few times and united in that in that front. What about like were you you've obviously known the Newton family too. Did you did you go to the school with the Newton boys and the or the daughters or yeah, Michael so, Newton's family? So that actually happened through association with my dad. Uh, he knows Michael quite well. Uh, obviously crewed for him a few times. And then with their kids, obviously close family friends, they live just down the road from us as well. Uh, Josh, a couple of years younger than me, but uh, there was, I always get confused with this because there's one of Michael's daughters was mm. one year below me in school, yeah. Isabella. Yeah. One yeah. of them went on to do filming in, in yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. So Isabella was a year below me in school, um, but then Josh was quite a few years younger than me as well. Mm. Um, but uh, obviously now that Josh is working with Michael, I see him quite a bit when we wrap cars for them or at the racetrack. So we catch up with him every now and then, but I've sort of moved as much as I'm still in the Hawkesbury. I'm probably about half an hour away now. So mm. unless it's to do with racing, we don't typically see each other too much. Yeah. So with your, with your family and with your dad, I noticed that your dad was a car racer himself. And was that partly to do with like the Shyland family or like how did that all start for him before? Like how did that motorsport type of energy happen in your family? Yeah. So dad, dad was always a rev head when he was younger. He started his racing. He, I think he actually stole mum's road car. It was a little Tirana. Yeah. And he started doing uh, hills, hill climbs in it. Uh, and from there it kind of developed as a bug that, just increased and you know what it's like racing's like a drug as soon as you get it in your system you can't get it out and there's nothing that can surpass that feeling (laughs) you just spend a ridiculous amount of money exactly and so dad went through where the shyland family comes into that sort of fold was when dad was racing formula ford i know he he transitioned into touring cars he had a little a86 sprinter uh, and in that there was a partnership with Peter Verhayen mm. and I know they did quite a few race meetings together and uh, I think it was the 91 Bathurst that they actually almost won their class until they had a mechanical failure. But Matt is related to Peter and so yeah. that's kind of how that whole family circle works and obviously we still know and talk to Matt through racing quite a lot. Dad doesn't really have anything to do with Peter anymore, um, but obviously we have quite a lot to do with Matt Shiland now. We've helped him out with wrapping his car and 
things like that with a bit of sponsorship. Uh, and he's, uh, he's done a lot for us too with obviously, you know, helping us out with getting work and things like that. So sort of like, you know, helping each other out still, which is great. Yeah. You were talking about how you, how your mum, your dad got into your mum's race car, or not car, like a Tirana though, yeah. which is technically a race car back then. Yeah. But how did they actually meet? Did they, have they actually told you a story of like how they met? Was it like? Yeah. So they were actually both hairdressers. Really? My dad was a hairdresser when he was a lot younger. So No way. The way that whole whole plan did. Dad had a, had a couple of hairdressing salons. Really? And uh, it got to the point where he actually, where the shockwave sign started mm. was he had a little vinyl cutter and it was just out the back of one of his salons and he got sick of doing hair. He was so over it. He couldn't stand it anymore. Mm. And he started just, you know, making a couple stickers for his race cars and whatnot. And then he sort of thought, this is pretty cool. Started picking up a couple little jobs here and there. And before I knew it, he made the big transition to get rid of all of the salons and, you know, kick off a sign shop. And, but that's how they met. Mum was a hairdresser as well. And I think they sort of crossed paths a few times and through association, they met each other and yeah, their sort of story kicked off from there. Yeah. And with you, with your parents, is your family like on, on Christmas day, before you met your wife and someone now, but was it always, is it like a big family gathering at Christmas or is it like a small family? Yeah, look, obviously pre-COVID, mm. it was a lot easier. We, we've struggled to do the family catch-up since COVID because a couple of my family members on dad's side have been a little bit unwell. Uh, so rather than risk, you yeah. know, a meetup, if you take anything there, we've sort of just been, you know, trying to call each other on the phone and things like that. But obviously pre-COVID, mum had, when I was real young, mum had about seven or eight siblings. And so those Christmases were massive. When my nan was still around, it was just, we all got together and it was just this huge family vibe. Dad's side of the family was good too. Um, he had a sister and, and a brother and they would bring all their kids along and that was quite fun. But I think once my grandparents passed away, mm. there was just this huge divide on, and on kind of both sides of the family really. Mm. Uh, and that like, obviously we still have our really close connection still yeah um but yeah our christmases used to be a lot bigger than they are now which is a bit of a shame but uh, i think obviously as you grow up family have issues and move away from each other and yeah you know it gets hard but for the most part we've got a pretty good family unit yeah so your nan was like the glue there. Yeah, she was yeah my nan was the glue uh which which held everyone together and then once she passed away there was family problems and things like that and yeah it was it was a real shame because I was quite young when that all happened so I don't typically know the ins and outs of it all but all I know is that I went from having huge Christmases with like heaps and heaps of people there to it was quite a, a close-knit group and um we're super lucky now but like I've I live three minutes down the road from my dad and my sister's one minute up the road from me. So yeah. we we have a really close family group now and for Christmases it's great because we all get together and the young kids get to play and I'm now at an age now where I, I'm not that little kid anymore but yeah. I get to watch them have fun and, and it's it's actually really wholesome and rewarding. And now I finally understand why parents love Christmas so much. Yeah, and you're just now like recently a dad to your wife. Yep. Is it Melissa? Uh, Matilda. Matilda. There yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how did you, how did you meet her and how did that all come about? We actually met at school. Uh, it's a funny story actually. So she was a year above me, yep. but um, we're the same age and 
when I was in high school, I was uh, in this mindset that I was going to be a professional motocross rider. Yeah. And I was, that was my goal. I wasn't even interested in cars at the time. Yeah. And so, so I was, I, I sort of walked around a little bit like a hotshot, but yeah. I was so shy. I could not talk to anyone yeah. and especially not if they were older than me. Yeah. And I, I saw Matilda across the playground and I said to one of my friends, I'm like, I need to find out what her MSN is. Yeah. And that's how it started <laughs> because I was like, I cannot talk to her in real life, but I need her MSN. And I got it um, and we started talking, but we we got along. We were always really good friends, but I could never get past that boundary of talking to her in person because I was too shy. And uh, yeah, obviously one thing led to another. She went off and went to another school and I tried to pursue a professional race car career at that stage and yeah, she went and had a little daughter and then it just so happened that we came back together and I sent, sent her a message on Facebook one day purely just to see how she was going because we hadn't spoken for a couple of years. And, you know, she was basically telling me her story and I said, hey, do you want to catch up for lunch? That's all, that's all it was. It was just lunch. Yeah. And from that moment, we have not gone a day without talking. Yeah. It was just like that. Yeah, right. And it was just this instant connection and it felt so right. And the best part about it was that obviously she had a daughter, Alora, and mm. her and I got along like a house on fire. Like she loved when I'd come over and we'd play and and it made it so much easier because, you know, it was just a, we instantly felt united. And then, uh, yeah, from there it, it just we sort of hit it off and went on a couple of dates and made it official. So yeah. since then we've been together for about three years now, but it's just been a roller coaster. Like it's, yeah. it's all happened so fast, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, we got engaged, then we got married and now we've got Tucker, our first born son. So yeah, it's, um, it's really exciting and it's been a nice distraction from COVID because this all happened when COVID hit. So, you know, if from a racing perspective, we were, you know, at that point in time I was trying to get this Trans Am deal together and we did a couple races in that and then the next weekend COVID hit and that car got sold and I didn't know where my racing career was going to go and I didn't even know how long COVID was going to be around for. Yeah. So I sat there and I was like, you know, I've got, you know, it's just perfect time to start a family, you know, yeah. get it, get it in, get it done. And, yeah. you know, now we've, we've got the family unit there and I can, I'm, I'm now starting to focus on racing as well. So it's kind of like it all worked out really perfectly in a weird way, but yeah, it's been good. So we're talking about like your Trans Am stuff. We'll go back a bit with you. You, you did you go, was it bikes first then carts or was it carts then bikes? So it's bikes first. Yeah. So I, I, um, mum, the story goes with bikes is mum won one of those little Christmas raffles at the local service station mm. and she won me a Wee 50 yeah. and that sparked my love straight away. I was like two wheels of, is me. Um, I love the dirt. I love the motocross. And I think part of it was like, I loved the, you know, you go to Supercross and it's this massive show. And I was like, I want to be there one day. And I was that kid that would run around getting autographs off the riders because I thought it was so cool. And it was actually injury that took me out of motorbikes. So I'd broken a hell of a lot of bones. And then I went through a lot of, you know, going back and forth to specialists and doctors trying to get wrists and collarbones and arms fixed. And then it was when I was... 13 mm. I had a 
massive shunt and just completely stuffed my left knee. And the doctor said to me, you know, you have 10% stability left in your knee. Cause I'd completely, they had to remove my ACL cause I could not straighten my leg. And so they said, you've got 10% stability in your leg, but we cannot operate on it until you've, your growth plates have fused. And what did that mean for me? Well, that meant that I couldn't do PE at school. I couldn't run. I couldn't jump. I couldn't do anything physical that uses your legs. And that was hard because I was in like year eight. I just started year eight. So I'm like in, that's when kids want to go and run around, you know, like that's when you're full of energy. You want to start doing some sports at school. And I was sitting there watching everyone else play PE and it sucked. And I sat down with dad and, Obviously, instantly the motorbikes were completely off the table because I couldn't ride. I've got to ask before you went to cars, did you have any Pacific motorbike rider that you looked up to, like a Travis Pastrana or anything like that? I loved Chad Reed. Yeah, Yeah, it sounds very basic, but I loved Chad um, because he was just an idol. He was overseas and he was so cool. If I had to look at like at that era – is uh, the other rider I really liked was Ty Simmons. Mm. And I think he's gone on now to do a bit more of like your rally bike style. I don't actually know if he's still racing, to be honest. But yeah. in that heyday, he was right into Supercross and and he was a young kid, really. And I just thought he was cool. I was on a KDM at the time and I'm like, I want to be like him. And that was it. So, yeah, the story goes that I couldn't do anything else. And Dad said, do you want to go out to Eastern Creek? You know, the high carts out yeah, of Eastern Creek? Yeah. Dad was like, I'm going to take you out there and we're going to see if you like four wheels. And I wasn't really interested. I sort of shoved it off a couple of times. I said, no, nah, Dad, I don't – I'm a motorbike kid. Like, I don't want to go and race go-karts. Anyway, one day he was like, mate, you've got to just trust me. Let's go have some fun. Yep. And he took me out and it worked out perfectly. He took me out. We did a session and, and Eastern Creek was great. They said, you know, we'll give you guys this one-off session. You guys, both you and your dad, just go out there in these carts and have fun. So there was no one else out there. And I just went out there and gapped him. And dad was like, to me, dad was the best driver in the world because growing up, my, I'd seen his trophies all over the house and I'm like, my dad's the best. I, I trusted him every time I was in the car with him. You know, like everything I saw my dad do, I was like, you are the best driver in the world. To me, my dad was Michael Schumacher, you know what yeah. I mean? And when I went out, out, out there, obviously I'm a hell of a lot lighter than he was uh, at the time. But, you know, I'm driving along and then I'm, I'm turning around. I'm like, where's dad? Like, where's he gone? <laughs> and so I'd slow up and he'd catch me and I'd let him pass him, pass me and I'd pass him back. And we had so much fun. I got out there and I got out of the cart and I was like, how cool was that dad? Like that was so much fun. Yeah. And obviously, you know, yourself, a higher cart is nothing on a racing cart. Like no. they're a lot slower. And dad goes, well, it just so happened that that day we were there, there was like a massive meeting over at the proper go-kart track. Yeah. What year was this? Do you remember? Oh, that would have been... 2000 and I want to say the start of 2011, yeah, but okay. it might've been the end of 2010. Yeah. Okay. But it was a big meeting. You know, I'm talking the pits were packed and was it the Brian Farley Memorial? It could have been. Cause I was raced. That was probably my last race. It ever. could have, it could have been, <laughs> yeah, it could have been that. Cause yeah. I know that like it was, I can't exactly remember what time of year it was, but we head over to the racetrack anyway. And, and dad was like, oh, I'm, I'm still a shy kid at this point. Don't yeah. get me wrong. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not one to want to walk up to everyone and start talking to them. And plus I was a motorbike kid. So I knew no one at the go-kart track. I yeah. didn't know any of the teams. I didn't know what a good, good or bad go-kart was. I was just 
like a deer in the headlights basically. And we walked around the pits and we went and watched some of the races and I'm watching how fast some of these kids are going. And I'm like, this is actually nuts. Like these kids are coming out of these corners sideways, dropping wheels in the dirt, smashing curbs. Yeah. And I was like, to me as a motocross kid, I was like, yeah, go-karts is kind of boring you know you're just driving down the track but then when i watched how fierce it was i was like dad this is actually pretty cool so it just so happened that while we were there and we ran into the stones kart sport team yeah dad knew ian from back when they were racing sports sedans way back and so we were just walking around and, and dad you know started talking to ian and they sort of started saying you know oh you know jimmy's looking at getting into a kart and mm. and ian obviously with his association with dad was like, oh, you know, let me have a think about it during the week and I'll see what I can do. Anyway, so Ian went went away and put together this really awesome deal where he sold us a, an AX9 go-kart. It was a second-hand one. Yeah. But then we were entering the, the Jays and mm. he said to dad, he goes, I have this engine that is like one of my best J engines I've ever built and I want to give it to Jimmy. So we were like, okay, you know, this is cool. So in return, we started running some Stones Kart Sport logos and we basically bounced as much off them as we could because we were sponges, you know. Mm. We didn't really know much about it. And so with setup and what meetings to go to and who to talk to and how to race effectively, it all came from them. And I didn't typically spend too much time in go-karts because it was this weird – I still to this day, I don't understand what happened. I entered karting and, you know, I didn't have any expectations. I didn't, I didn't think I was going to become any good at it. I didn't think I was going to become a racing car driver. I did. I just was doing it because it was a sport, you know, yeah. like, and we were out there having fun. And then I, it went, what happened was I started getting good results and it was just at like Lithgow. Lithgow was my main track, even though I was just down the road from Eastern Creek. Stones yeah. basically said, you need to go to Lithgow. Yeah. Was that their home track, was it? I think that's where they based themselves out of because they were out near Penrith, I think. So I think for them, they just shut up to Lithgow and they yeah. were like, you know, so so we were just doing what we were told effectively. We were like, yeah, okay, we'll come do CDKC events and yeah. and see how we go. And it was when we started getting podiums in the J class that, I don't know. There was just this really weird stigma mm. that because I was from motocross, no one liked me. And mm. I, I still to this day, I don't know why. I didn't go out there like a – I wasn't cocky. I wasn't, you know, yeah. a smart ass. I was just going out there driving and yep. could not finish a race Yeah, because I'd just get taken out. And it was horrible. Like I would go out there at, at some of the biggest – events and you know i never like chased a state championship or a national title i never chased any of that because i was only in it for a year Mm. but you know as we got better people were like you know there was i think there was a a race meeting the year i was doing karting at um and it was when they were running the cik stars of karting i was in that yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) but they had at this one is that Eastern Creek? No, was it? it was Newcastle. Oh, they Newcastle. Had, yeah, they that had, was the finale um, back then. Yeah, yeah. They, but they had at this particular event, Jays could run, but they mixed yeah. they mixed light oh, and heavy. That's right. They called the it was called the Yamaha Challenge. Yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, they had but, Clubmans and the Jays in two different two different things. But but I basically um, like a pro it, event. Yeah, it was yeah. like you know we, I think we were an invited class maybe or something along those lines. But we saw we thought you know let's go do it. Like we, I thought I was going to run last, you know what I mean? Like this is a huge event and I'm like, 
I haven't even been doing this for a year. So I was like, I'm going to go there and get hosed and I'm okay with that because let's just see how we go. And it really annoyed me because we went out there and we were actually going okay. We were running not up the front. This was back when... James Abella, James Duckworth, all of these kids were in J's. Yeah, and I was going to ask they, you, you were racing. Yeah, against. yeah. These were the kids that I looked at and I was like, you guys are God. Like yeah. you can't do anything <laughs> wrong in a go-kart. And yeah. I idolized them even yeah, though we were the same yeah, age because yeah. I was like, I, I'd love to be able to drive a go-kart as good as they could, but yeah. I'm still learning, you know. So these guys are all out there going hammer and tong at the front. And I think I was running maybe top 10. Yeah. So I was pretty happy with that. That's you know, pretty like decent I, for your first year, though. Yeah, I, I wasn't too unhappy with that. You know, I was I, I didn't know the track very well and I was just trying to learn. And I think I got up to like a top 10 position and then I just got fenced. Yeah. For no reason at all, I just got fenced. And I was like, oh, maybe it was a one-off thing. But then it got to the point where I could not go to a race meeting without getting fenced. Mm. And, you know, we'd do the whole day going to get to the final and I'd get punted off. And it was not an accident. It was a few select people that were intentionally every time going out and taking me out. Yeah, Was this through turn one essentially there or was it just random points of the track? So Clyde Marshall was the Lithgow Memorial, wasn't it? Yeah. We were doing that one day, Mm. that, that year that I raced. And I, in the final, I was running for a podium. I think I was running third. Mm. And I was coming down into that hairpin at the bottom of the track and I was the last lap. And I was like, I'm at the hairpin. I've got third. This is, this is done behind me. They lined up and I can't even remember the kid's name, but he literally just pulled out and didn't break. And he T-boned me and went up and over my head and just completely cleaned me out. And I was like, was your car bent and everything? Yeah. Yeah. Whole front end was twisted up and over. And I was like, I got out and dad was furious as you can yeah. imagine because it was clearly, it was just a takeout. Yeah. And this was just a common theme that started happening in karting and I wasn't retaliating. Mm. I wasn't, ta- I, I was not one to hit back because I wanted to race clean. And um, I started getting to the point where dad would pull me aside and go, mate, if you don't hit these kids back, they're always going to hit you off. And I was like, well, I don't want to be dirty. And dad goes, mate, if you don't start hitting them back, you're never going to finish a race. Yeah. And so it went to, it was just a, this was a club day at Lithgow. Yeah. And dad said to me before the final, I don't think I'd finished a race. And dad said to me before the final, he goes, mate, just go out there. I don't care. Just hit him, hit him so that you can make a statement because I'm sick of you bending this cart. Yeah. And I went, all right. Yeah. Fair enough. Off the start, I just went for this big dive bomb up the inside and I think I took two guys out. That, <laughs> and it was good because yeah. they were the kids that kept taking me out every round. Yeah. So they went off and then my tyres went off and I was falling back through the field and then another one that kept taking me <laughs> out, he was out in the sand and I got in off the track. I finished nowhere, yeah. but I just didn't care. I was just like, I'm making a statement here because I'm over it. Yeah. And I was in the trailer and – it wasn't even the kids themselves that came to start abusing me. It was all of their parents. And I'm like probably four, 13 or 14 at this stage and yeah. I'm down in my undies in the trailer and there's these parents in our trailer yelling at me. And I was like, can I just put some pants on, please? Yeah. <laughs> like this is this is the weird timing. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it was at that event that we just chucked everything in the trailer. We went home and we just sold everything because we were like, this go-karting sucks. Like it's just, it was really toxic. It was back when Facebook started to become bigger and I was 
like I was getting death threats and this, I'm talking like we're racing club level yeah. in J's. Like yeah. we're not even running for anything serious. And I'm getting like, there's these comment threads that like people are saying that my family was going to die for what I did and, and all this sort really? of stuff. And I'm like, mate, it was a club event and I turned you around into the sand. You didn't barrel roll into the fence. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it was harmless and it, it was what they kept dishing to me every single race. But then apparently, you know, my family was going to die and, and it was all getting really dark. And we just walked away from it because we were like, you know, this is so toxic and it really put a bitter taste in my mouth for go-karting. And I don't even think I did a full year. I think I only did about 10 months and that was it. Did you ever win a trophy at, at, at any point in those club days or not? Um, yeah, we got a couple. Um, Just to keep you motivated, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, we got a couple. Like it was hard. I, I, I think the thing that, you know, when you start and you're on your P's, you have to start at the back at every race. Yeah. I was starting at the back and I was still getting a podium in the final. And I think that's what sort of started this hatred. I don't mm. know what it was. Like it was nothing I in particular was feeling like I was doing wrong. And then it got... It got really bad. So we like removed ourselves from go-karting and the hate didn't stop. You know, like people were still slamming me and like, you know, it was so petty and pathetic, but it was just, it was just what we were, we were prone to. (laughs) We were just, I don't know, magnets to it. And I don't know why. And then, yeah, it was at that point there that um, not a lot of people know this, but what actually started my car racing career was my, Grandma passed away and with that, dad got a little bit of inheritance money mm. and put he put that towards buying that Reynard Formula Ford that we had. Yeah, I was going to ask And it's, yeah. it's like, you know, that was at the point in time that hatred we were getting online mm. just went through the roof because now everyone saw me as this little rich kid yeah. and my daddy's just buying me these race cars and I've got no talent and yeah. all this stuff and – Still at that point, I didn't think I was going to become a racing car driver. Like I was obviously dad had just bought this race car, which was so cool because mm. I was 14 and I was like, this is mega. Some, yeah. Any um, kid at that point would be like, hell yeah, the yeah, race car. Yeah. yeah. But like I was, it was a historic race car, you know, like yeah. and I didn't know what the racing ranks were all about. Like I didn't think that we were going to make a name for ourselves. I didn't think we were going to get anywhere, but all these kids in go-karts just saw me as this rich kid. And no one knows the fact that the only reason that that happened was because the small amount of inheritance money that dad got, he just put that towards buying that car. And that was it. That's what kicked off my career. And, you know, to this day, I'm, super grateful and I've always sort of looked at it. I don't even think I've told mum and dad this, but I've always sort of looked at what I've done in racing and put it down, like as far as racing cars is concerned, I've put it down to, you know, my grandma and, you know, I've sort of always thought about her when I'm racing and and it is, it's one of those things it's without her and without her help at that starting point, we wouldn't have ever raced a car and Mm. we would have never, like I think, that was back in 2012. So this is my 10th year. Yeah. And I'm like, all of this, everything that I have done goes back to that one, one moment. And, yeah. you know, I'm super grateful for that. And yeah, it's, it's something that I always think about, I think. Yeah. So for you, when did you, when did you buy the, with the historic car, did that come from Don Holland or did you, yeah. had that all originate from? So when I was in go-karts, Dad was calling around quite a few people because we were su- we were subject to that hate really early on, and Dad ha- Dad had had a lipful of it. He was over it, and he wanted to move to cars, and so he was trying to organise a Formula Ford test with me, and 
he spoke to quite a few people at the time. One of the people in particular was actually Tim Beale. I know he was talking to yeah. Tim and because Tim had the Formula Ford experience days and it was hard because I was real young at the time. And at, at the time that I was trying to forge my career as a 14-year-old in a car, cams at the time had this ruling that in New South Wales you had to be 16 to race. Like but a ev- car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. everywhere else you could be 14. So mm. I could drive down to Melbourne and race down at Phillip Island mm. or I could go to Morgan Park in Queensland. Mm. But in Sydney, I couldn't until I was 16. Yeah. And so it made it really hard. So dad called quite a few people and said, hey, I want him to do a test. And um, a few people said, no, it's just too hard. It's too early being in Sydney. What actually happened was uh, word got around in the industry that dad was looking for a car. Mm. And Don Holland had one for sale because he's he he had two cars and David his son was running one, and I and he I think it was his nephew or something was running or his grandson I think it might yeah, have been yeah, he was running the car I ended up buying so that car was for sale and Dad got onto Don and said Hey mate you know thinking about getting Jimmy into racing cars but can we do a test in the car first and Don was so helpful he was like. Absolutely, mate. Like, you know, let's, let's, he was so motivated. He's like, let's organize a test day down at Wakefield. You know, we'll get you down there and, you know, I'll get you in the car. And if you like the car, you can buy it and I'll help you out. Like, could not have given us more help if he tried. Yeah. And we actually, we were lucky because I was, I was either 14 or, no, I was, I was 14 at the time. And as I said, we went down to Wakefield Park and, printed up a student ID card that made me two years older just in case they asked for ID because I was such a baby-faced kid. Yeah. And um, I remember we I got, I remember back then because I was yeah, into it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I went and did a test day and uh, it worked out really, really well Yeah, um, because I um, ended up doing some decent lap times and then I ended up getting um, – what actually ended up happening that day was we actually ended up getting taken out. Yeah. There was a Formula V day, come and try day. Yeah. And uh, when I was out there, I was just doing a run on old tires and um, one of these kids in this Formula V just turned into me and he basically destroyed the one of the corners on the Formula Ford. And so as a young kid, I was devastated. I was like, you know, this is my first drive in a race car. We were fast, but... You know, I've gone and just basically destroyed the back end of this car. Yeah. And so Don cut us a really good deal. We bought the car and then from there it was just, you know, Don helped us out a lot saying it was a similar situation that we had with the Stones family. Mm. But Don was like, you know, come and race here, come and race here. Yeah. You know, he was introducing us to his network of people and he's a very well-respected man in the industry himself. And so, you know, from there – you know, we uh, focused on some historic racing in 2012. And as I said, we were fighting the legal system, trying mm. to get a dispensation to race in Eastern Creek or just in Sydney in general. Uh, but no one would budge. The government wouldn't budge. We were trying to say like, oh, it's a restriction of trade. You know, this kid's trying to make a career out of it and you're not letting him race. And But we ended up just traveling. We had to. We had no choice. So we were down at Winton, Phillip Island, Morgan Park. You know, we just raced where we could get our car to the track and then yeah. get it that they would let us on there we had dispens- we the only time i ever got a dispensation was to do my olt at wakefield park i was four, really? i was 14 and i it was through doreen butchers yeah so she worked so hard because she 
I don't know what it was. Her and I have just gotten along so well from the start. She's like the glue of Eastern Creek. Though, she is. She's yeah. she's such an awesome woman. Like I got to get her on the pod eventually. I'd say. Yeah, she. <laughs> you do because she is just something else. Like from the outset, from when I first met Doreen, she was she just wanted to help. Yeah. And so she worked really hard and got me a dispensation to do my OLT at Wakefield, and we passed that, and then we. Um, she was part of, of helping us try to get the government to change the rules in, in, in New South Wales. We worked really hard to try to make it fair for the kids that are trying to race in New South Wales to be able to race at 14 because it wasn't fair. Every other kid that was based in Melbourne or Queensland, they could go and race, but we had to travel and we were like, this doesn't seem right. I have a feeling, I've, I've, to my knowledge, they've changed that ruling now. Yeah, so, they have, they yeah, they changed it, I think. It wasn't long after I turned 16 that they went, oh, yeah, you can be 14 now in, in, in race at Eastern Creek. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, anyway, I'm really happy that they changed it because now for all the young kids, yeah, they can. Essentially got to thank you, those young kids. Yeah, they, they can just, you, you know, revolutionize we, we pushed so hard. Like we, we really tried to change that law because it was, it was really unfair. Yeah. But um yeah, it was it was cool. We we did a lot of traveling, and once I turned sixteen, uh, we started doing a couple of state series rounds at Eastern Creek, uh, just running our historic Kent car against the late model Kent cars, mm. and it was a lot of fun. Like if I think back to it, like that was the heyday of like going out there in old school machinery, taking it to the guys in the new school stuff, and just trying our best. Mm. We weren't expected to win because we were in an old car, but Sometimes we were and we yeah. were winning. And it was like people were like, well, how are you doing yeah. this? You're beating the Anglo cars and stuff. Too. Yeah, it was, them and- yeah, we had such good battles and it was so much fun. And um, it was at that point in time that being at the state series events, uh, Paul Liston was there with – he was running his LizTech team and, you know, Paul, you'd so, always sort of see Paul, you know, he'd always, you, you can see, I see it, I even see it now. You can see the, the drivers he's got his eye on, you know, yeah. the young kids that come through, he, you know, you see them and they're always at the racetrack because they're just based five minutes down the road from Eastern Creek. So yeah. even at test days, I always see them without a doubt pop their heads out just to have a look. Yeah. And so Paul had spoken to dad a few times and obviously knew Don Holland who was still part of our program and, it was actually I, – I got involved in a pretty nasty shunt with Jake Hobbs at Turn 1 at Eastern Creek. Uh, he spun in front of me. I had nowhere to go and I cleaned him up and flew through the air. And uh, it's actually on YouTube, I think. I think that yeah, video is right. still on YouTube. Should we find it? Yeah, you can if Do you want. Do you want to find it? Yeah, right. just, I think just search Jimmy Vernon Formula Ford crash okay. at Eastern Creek. Um it's- for the for the listeners at home, this is me testing out my first YouTube experience. <laughs> <laughs> what you need to do is you need to, you need to get this podcast on TikTok, mate. A TikTok, oh, TikTok well, podcast. He's got, Dan has his podcast set up for TikTok now. From these episodes, we'll be cutting special ones just for TikTok reels. Yeah, sweet. Well, it was pretty nasty shunt, actually. I was pretty Formula s- Ford 2013. Is that it? Yeah, that's okay. it. Yeah, it was pretty scary. I just um. I was just staring. Is this the is this the crash one? Or is this this is, oh yeah, this is, is it. This yep. is it. This is Jake's Hob- Jake Hobbs. Jake Hobbs is a couple cars in front. So we were in this real big battle, and it was real wet. And this was actually, I'm pretty sure this was the lead, the battle for the lead in the Kent class. Yeah. So we've all pulled out of the slipstream, and I was like, oh, I'll just, I won't try to anything stupid here because it's wet. And Jake's 
lost it and I've gone, oh, 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 no. oh and I just had nowhere to oh, go. Hol- oh, holy crap. I think I remember that because I was racing at the time then too. Yeah, it was a yeah. big shunt. I think my my wheel ended up about maybe 50 mil off his helmet. Yeah. You could see in his car where, it, you know, the the tire track went up and over the side of the car and it was pretty gnarly. Um, yeah. And that was... I hadn't been racing for very long then, and so that was pretty scary. So that was that um, your second or first year in Formula Ford? That was second. Yeah, yeah. But that um, that that crash in particular, I had a, a historic race meeting, the big one they do in June at mm. Eastern Creek. Uh, that was the very next weekend after that race that happened just there, and. Paul Liston was there because he's always there, but Paul Liston saw that crash happen and he came straight up because they're fabricators as well. And he said, you guys need a hand? And yeah. dad was like, oh, he's supposed to be racing next weekend, but there's no way. Like the car was buggered. Like, yeah, it was, looked, looked pretty bad. Yeah, the front like, end was gone. We were, lucky. we were lucky we had a spare nose cone and things like that, but uh, the actual like suspension arms and things like that, toast. And I looked at it and I was devastated because this is my my race car, it's, it's buggered, you know? And Paul went up to dad and said, yeah, you know, so you, you're racing next weekend. Dad went, yeah, well, we're supposed to be, but there's no way we're ever going to get there. Mm. And Paul went, I'll get you there. Yeah. And sure enough, he rebuilt that car within a couple of days and we were there the very next weekend. Paul Liston did? Yeah, yeah. And he, did they, he take he, that car to his shop? He and, Joe, the he and Joe built all the suspension arms and everything for it. And whilst they had that, they, they took, you know, they made jigs and everything so they could make more if they yeah. had to. Wow. Um, but they, they turned that around real fast and yeah. they got that car back on track for the next weekend and we, we won, mm. you know. And it was just, it was that point in time that I think, you know, we started that association with LizTech and Paul was looking for his next young driver and he mm. wanted he wanted to take the step to race the National Formula Ford Championship and I at the time we had like quite a few good results in state level and things like that racing against some pretty good drivers yeah and uh Paul basically said I want you to do a test in the Juratech for me my dad raced National Formula Ford mm. and so as I said, my dad was my Michael Schumacher. And yeah. if he raced National Formula Ford, I looked at that as like, you're a professional racing car driver at yeah. that time. And so when I had the opportunity to go test that car, I thought, you know, this is my chance to to be like my dad, you know, and that's all that went through my little head. I was like, I'm going to be like dad if I can get this across the line. And we went and did the test with Paul and, you know, performed pretty well. And it was at that point there that you know, we were – struggling for money. Like we didn't have much money um, and, you know, we were struggling to run at a historic level and all you're really doing there is paying for an entry fee and tyres and chucking some fuel in the car. Uh, And even that was a struggle for us. And so we sat down and spoke to Paul Liston because at that time, you know, to run national level Formula Ford, it was the year I did it was 2014 and that was the year that they took it off the supercars calendar. Yeah, that was when the F-Force... Saga kind of. No, F4, two, F4 was 2015. Yeah. So it was the year after. But they were preparing, cams were preparing yeah, to switch Yeah, so they obviously had that plan that they were going to like basically squash Formula Ford and push them off the main calendar to make way for, for F4. Yeah. But I, at the time, the bigger teams like Sonic and everything, I think the budget was like, like $180,000 or something crazy like that. Yeah. And – we just like there was no way that we could ever fathom that. But we did this test with Paul Liston 
and Paul really wanted to go to national level as well and spoke in length to dad and we picked up a couple sponsors here and there. But Paul and Joe, they ran us in 2014 on the smell of an oily rag yeah. for next to nothing and they gave me my first shot at a national level race. Yeah. And that is that year didn't go to plan. Obviously we had a pretty big accident in the second round, but you know, to, for them to put their faith in me as a young kid mm. and give me my shot at a national level championship, you know, it's, and, and the fact that they did it so cheap, mm. that is the thing that I go like those two guys, are. Uh, amazing like without their help i probably wouldn't have got myself on the national radar mm. you know my name would have just been a historic racer you know mm. like but they helped me so much and we we turned up at the events and we ran the car and and you know we did our best and you know i was i was still learning my craft mm. you know like I, it was a big jump to jump into the duratec class and, you know, I didn't really get a proper crack at it because at the second round, like we started winning races at state level. So we started getting competitive and then it was not long after we started getting competitive that we had the big crash at Winton. Before you in the Duratec, was Glenn Welsh running that car? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that yeah. car was reasonably set up, I'd say. Yeah. So Glenn, Glenn was there to help me out. Um, he would come out and be a bit of a mentor, I guess you could say. Um, and... I struggled at that that point in time because my driving style just was so gelled to the Reynard, which is effectively just a big armchair. You just come in, you slide it through the corners, this big doughy soft lounge chair. But you jump into a, a Duratec and the Liztec and it was like a different beast. And mm. I had to wrap my head fully around that. And it was great having Glenn there because he – helped me a lot to say, you know, this is how you should try to drive and change your driving style here and there. And, you know, he helped us get competitive a lot faster. Yeah. Um, and it's just a real shame. Like looking back at that year, I wish we had a chance to do the full championship um, because it would have been good to see how we progressed through the year. But obviously we had, I think it was three months out of the seat with the broken neck and we lost a couple rounds. We still finished the year off. As soon as I got clearance from the specialist, we were back in the car and we went back to, I think there was three national rounds left. I think we did one at Wakefield, one at Eastern Creek and one at Phillip Island. Mm. So we got to finish the year out, but you know, at that point in time, we were so far behind the eight ball because the other teams had been racing all year that we sort of just had to pick up the pieces. We had a pretty good run at Wakefield. I think we were top five, um, which we were stoked with because it was my first race back from mm. the injury. And to run top five against, you know, some real hotshot drivers. I was That was the year Randall won the year. Yeah, that was a very, yeah. very competitive year. So we had, I think it was like the fast guys were like Randall, Jordan Lloyd was there, mm. uh, Hamish Hardiman. I remember having a few good dices with Jake Parsons. Yep. He was with Synergy. Um, Caitlin Wood was in there too. Caitlin Wood, yeah, yeah she was her, there. I in season one, yeah. Uh, so 2014 was a big year for, even though they took it away from, they, we went to a Shannon's Nationals level, mm. it was a big year for Formula Ford and a lot of fast drivers who have gone on to do great things. Yeah. Uh, so to run top five in that that category was was great. And um, I think the kids these days would just be lucky for for the whole series to be on the Shannon's thing because now it's obviously yeah, mixed between I state f- and whatnot. I feel for them, man. Like it sucks. Like to have your 
category chop and change so much is mm. is hard and like it still wouldn't be cheap to run mm. and so when they're trying to go out there and find corporate support and their calendar keeps changing and the type of events they're at keep changing yeah. it'd, be, it'd be hard like it'd be super tough and um hopefully they can get you know a bit more of a united front i guess you could say yeah. and they could they could get a bit bit more coverage and things like that because you look at the category now and even last weekend massive field super competitive and great racing yeah. and that's that's like i still think formula ford is where a lot of great drivers come from and i think that if they can you know continue that that formula and keep that in the limelight then it'll be benefiting everyone so yeah. my career in national level racing though and formula ford as a whole i put it down to Tech. And I still have a great relationship with them. You know, they still will help me out with even stuff on my production car if I need it. Um, And, you know, they're always at the racetrack, as I said, and I always catch up with, you know, them and and talk about, like, I'm still really good friends with Will Liston. Mm. You know, we've we've basically been like a little family unit since I raced for them. And uh, I'm super, super grateful that that relationship stayed strong. After that, you went into a race for age, was it? Did you were you doing F four straight after that, or did you do? Yeah, because oh, I remember a while ago that you actually tested an F three. Can you actually touch on that? Yeah. So, what happened after Formula Ford was, I, I was trying to tee up to do another year of Formula Ford because obviously I had the injury. I didn't feel like I got to do it properly, so I was like, let's try to do it again in two thousand and fifteen and see how we go. And so I went and had a meeting with. Uh, tool force mm. and pitched to them this really good proposal for formula Ford for the following year. And they were pretty interested, you know, mm. they were like, Oh, that sounds pretty good. And, and it was all looking like it could be a, a, a thing that could happen, you know? And then a couple of weeks later, cams announced F4 mm. and it was that they did a great job of marketing that. Like it was like the, it was in the V8 supercars. It was limelight. And to me as a driver trying to build a profile, I was like, this is a global category. You know, this mm. is something I, I was sucked into it as well. And I was like, this is great. Like, you know, I, all it was, was I, I called up and I said, can I have another meeting with you guys? I've got something else I want to talk about. Mm. I sat down with them and basically said, you know, this is, this is an option. You know, we've got the option to go and race open wheelers in the front of the supercars with Fox sports and all of this publicity. Um, but it was a lot more expensive. And yeah. so I was like, you know, I didn't think it was going to pay off because they were already thinking about Formula Ford. So I was like, this isn't going to happen. And then a couple of days later, they called me up and said, let's give it a go. Let's put all our eggs in one basket and let's get you in front of the supercars. Let's go to F4. So we were the first driver to sign up. Uh, we were, so you were, were the first official one? First official driver, yeah. So yeah. originally we were going to do – we were looking at seeing if we could run it as privateers, yeah. keep it cheap. Um, but then when we found out that AGI Sport was the Sydney-based team, mm. uh, we organised a meeting with them because obviously we were in touch with CAMS to find as much information out as we could. Mm. And then they suggested that we go talk to Adam mm-hmm. and we went and had a meeting with Adam Gotch and he – told us all about his previous F1 experience and his factory. At the time, I know he's moved now, but at the time his factory was still immaculate. You know, yeah. we walked in there and his roll cages being built everywhere and all of his F1 memorabilia and stuff. And What's his we, shop look like? like I don't these, know what the new one looks like. What did the old one look yeah, like? Yeah, the old one was just, it was like polished floors. Like everything was just nice. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it was, 
it was out at Peakhurst and it was it was just professional. Like every and they were running Nathan Gotch in the F three car at state level at that time. And when you'd go out to the racetrack, even at state level, they had the pit walls, they had the nice fancy truck, they had just this presence that you could see what Adam had learnt in his time in F one mm. had come down through to what he was doing at the time. So we sat there and we were pretty impressed. We were like, this all sounds great. And Tool Force said, let's let's go with AGI Sport and signed up for that year and, and it was uh it was exciting. Yeah, as I said, first driver to sign up, it was a new category and I still didn't have very high expectations for myself, but I thought, let's see how we go. And then as more and more drivers got announced, like Randall and you know, these guys that I was racing Boyd against. Yeah, Ford yeah. Too. All these guys I was racing in Formula Ford, I was like, this is going to be competitive. Like, this is going to be a good championship. To uh, We're all in the exact same car. So mm. it'll be a great way to prove myself if I can do it or not. Mm. And in all the early test days, you know, we went out. There was one car that Cam's got in Australia first and mm. all the drivers that were interested was like a come and try day. And we all jumped in the car and on old tires at Winton and just had a, a crack. And at the time, you know, even guys like Chris Anthony were there from BRM. Um, he was doing F3 at the time, but looking at his options and we all went out there at this test day and I don't, I, in the morning session, I went out there and I was the fastest on, it was not official times, but yeah. just on a stopwatch, I was the fastest because we were timing everyone because why wouldn't you? Yeah. We were doing so a this con- Phillip Island, was it? Uh, Winton. Winton, okay. Yeah. So we were fast and it was looking really competitive. And I don't know who ran in the afternoon, but regardless, we mm. were looking at like our times against the kids that were there on the day and we were like, we might have a chance this year. Like yeah. this looks good. And, you know, as I said, my previous best was like top five in Formula Ford at national level. So I had my expectations pretty low, but I wanted to just see how we could go. And then we went to Townsville for our first ever race meeting and I was so excited. I was like, we're in the supercars limelight. Like how good is this going to be? And we were fast up there. We were running top three. Um, And in the second race, it was a reverse grid race. And we were leading the whole race until the very last lap. Off a safety car restart, Tom Randall turned me around and then I got collected by Zane Goddard and we were out of the race. And if I had just finished that lap and won that race, we would have been leading the championship. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it was – I was devastated because I was like, you know, we were fast, we had pace, but then in the first round we were taken out and we were behind the eight ball again. Mm -hmm. And we were playing catch-up mode for the rest of the year. So, you know, we ended up getting quite a few podiums. I, I, the best I finished in a race was second. I got close to winning a couple after that one in Townsville, but it just that Nash, that first national race win eluded me and I could not get it. And it yeah. was so frustrating, but it just was what it was. And it was such a competitive field that I could only do the best as second. Yeah, We ended up finishing the year in uh, fifth in the championship, I'm pretty sure, yeah. which was Who a teammates. The teammates I had that year... See, when we first signed up with AGI Sport, it was supposed to be a two-car team. And, you know, that was sort of how it was pitched to us. And when I turned up to the first round, I don't want to say this, I don't want to quote this the wrong way, but it was at least five, 
but I think maybe even as much as seven cars that the one team was running. And yeah. I was like, so wait, you got quoted at having two teammates. Essentially. It was supposed to be two teammates. Yeah. yeah. And Tom, Tom Gretsch was the other one that oh, signed up early. Right. So yeah. he and I were supposed to be AGI sport. Yeah. And then because cams, I think panicked and started trying to fish out <laughs> drivers yeah. before the first round. Yeah. Uh, it just so happened that we ended up with quite a few. BRM was the same. They ended up with quite a few drivers, but I know that in that first year I had Tom Gretsch, uh, he was in AGI that first year before he went to BRM. Yep. He had the um, white car, didn't he? Yeah. Because they just randomly popped him in there. Yeah, that's right. Nick Rowe, yep. he was there. Yep. Um, I think Rowie's playing AFL in Western Australia now, actually. <laughs> I don't even know if he races anymore, but um, he was a laugh. He was such a funny character at the track. Uh, who else? Uh, Jordan Love. Yeah. Jordan Love was there. He didn't do the whole year. I think he skipped Gold Coast, but the rest of the rounds he was there. Who else? Maybe it was only – oh. I think Jack Sip might have oh, done Jack a couple, yeah, yeah, yeah. couple Jack of Sip rounds. Was the last, yeah, he was. I, I remember that. Yeah, he was the last one. There. Nick Filippetto did the last round at Homebush, I think. So we had a couple fly-in, fly-out drivers. I've got to ask because you, I've never had anyone here race at Homebush. How did you find that track? Look, in a Formula 4 car, especially yeah. like I was only a year out of breaking my neck and back. Yeah. And so I had some – pretty severe back pain still from that. And mm. like even today, like I still suffer from pain from that crash, but yeah. being in an open wheeler at Homebush with not really much suspension travel mm. when you've got a sore back, it's tough. Yeah. And like <laughs> we walked the track and they – so when we went to the Gold Coast, the curbs had these nice smooth up ramps. And yeah. so we were smashing curbs in these cars left, right and centre. We got to the Homebush and – like I'm talking, these things look like bread loaves. Yeah. I was like, these curves Sausage are curves. huge, you yeah. know? And I was like, no one's going to hit these curves. And everyone in the category had pretty much said, no one's going to hit the curves. It's going to buckle a suspension arm or something. So first practice we go out there, no one's hitting the curves, but Tom Randall was like two seconds faster than everyone. Yeah. And we were like, how is he f- so fast? Yeah. And then there was a photo online of Tom just two wheels up in the air smashing these curbs and everyone went, I guess we have to hit the curbs then. <laughs> and from that point on, I hated that weekend mm. because I, I physically just like, I didn't like the circuit layout to begin with, but yeah. trying to smash curbs when you've got no suspension travel and a sore back, yeah. all that shock just, yeah, goes, just goes straight through. up your yeah. bum. And, and, your, and your hands are holding on for physically yeah. as well because of your back pain. Yeah, yeah, it was a tough weekend, but we, um, yeah, we we didn't have the best results. But yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, weren't you planning also to try your hand after their fourth thing in Europe as well? Yeah. So when the thing that was great about F four being a globally recognised category, we had so the long part of the story is when Dad was racing Formula Ford, he was. Uh, his engineer was Mick Kuros, mm. who is still over in Europe now. I think he works pretty closely with Callum Williams. Yeah, in F2, yeah. Yeah, Try so uh, at the time that I was doing F4, you know, Mick was talking to Dad and saying, you know, you got to get Jimmy over to Europe and things like that. And it, we were super close to going over and doing a couple tests. Uh, I think it was Team West Tech that was trying – I don't even – I, I don't think they still operate or they might have changed names or something. Yeah. But at the I'm time, sure at the time it was Team West Tech and they were trying to get us over for a test. And we got a official letter head from them trying to get government support because I was like, I think the test was going to set us back about 50 grand. And that was like a lot of money. Like that was huge. So we were like, we can't afford that. But 
we'll see if we can raise the money. You know, we'll try to do a couple fundraisers or we'll try to, you know, get the New South Wales government or the Australian government to, to help out a young Australian driver to get over there for a test. And we worked hard to get it happening, but it was probably about this close for mm. us to getting over to Europe. But then we just had the reality check of what happens. We asked them, we said, what happens if we go over there and we set the world on fire? We go set lap records every lap. What's mm. the next step? Like what is going to happen? And they said, oh, well, to do this championship, it's going to be 1.2 million euro or to do this championship. But it was all in the millions. And I was like, even if I go over there and test this car and do a fantastic job, where am I going to get that sort of money to continue to race that? I said, it, it is just, it's, it's unreal. Like the, the, the amount of money you need to go to Europe is crazy. And it was at that point there that I said, this is not worth it. How much was for the test though? Like in general, I think it was, I was explaining this to Brooke last night with them. I think it was, I think the figure we ended up needing was about 50 grand. And I think that was for three days at three different tracks. So I can't remember the tracks exactly, but um, I know that it was in at the time, I think it was what they were running in the Euro formula mm. championship, which was, oh, yeah, they Euro. explained it to us. It was pretty much like an F3 car. It was like yeah. the same, same style. So of they car. were the same, same chassis and what. Yeah, yeah. So it was a lot of money and it almost happened, but I suppose in hindsight, if it did, I don't even know, like it's a lot of money to go and spend on a test to, just come just come back to Australia, you know. Like at that point in time, a lot of kids were going over to Asia. I know Nick Rowe was doing a lot of racing over in uh I think they would what was it, the Formula Four Southeast Asia Championship or something. Yeah, there was yeah. a lot of like, Malaysia. Jordan, yeah, yeah, Jordan Love and Nick Rowe, a couple other guys, they were all over there with Meredith GP. Mm. And we thought about cause cause they were trying to get us over to Asia as well and just yeah. do some of that stuff. And I thought about it, but at the time, I didn't think it would take us anywhere if we went and raced in that category. And looking at it now, speaking to when I was racing F4, speaking to Rowie and Jordan Love, they got a lot of opportunities from being in Southeast Asia. And looking at it now, I'm like, oh, this probably wouldn't have been the silliest idea to go over and have a go and see if how we go in, in that championship. And it might have sort of dog-legged us into like yeah. a European scene in a weird way, but you know, the the money, the amount of money to do European racing is crazy. We looked at TRS at mm. the time. We were going to go over to New Zealand and do that summer series. Oh, the Toyota Racing Series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we looked at that because, as I said, like at that time, it was like all the hot shots from Europe, all yeah. the F3 kids, all of them in their off-season, they're going to TRS. Yeah, Tommy Randall did that, didn't he? He won yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, he won it. Um, So I looked at that and I was like, you know, maybe we should do that. But I think it, 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 when you look at the budget it was for, what, five weekends in a row, I think it was, it was like not far off a full season in F4 at the time mm. for us. And I was like, I'd rather race all, all year, not in the succession in five weekends. You know, like we couldn't raise that money, not in New Zealand. Like it wouldn't have happened. So... I sort of sat there and we didn't know what we were going to do. We couldn't raise the money to go to F4 again. F4, F4 copped so much hate for how they, how cams dealt with it. It copped a lot on social media. It's no secret. Uh, and so we tried to go back to it, but then the corporate support was not there anymore because it was like, well, why do you want to associate yourself with a category that's getting so much hate online? Mm. And I sat there and I said to dad, I was like, what are we going to do? Like we've been trying to chase this open wheeler path. We were 
we were on the doorstep to go to Europe and chase it properly. And look at us now. We're still in Australia. We, why are we even in open wheelers? Like this mm. doesn't really make any sense. And dad said, why don't we look at trying to get a touring car, like a production car? And I sort of looked at him with a funny look on my face and I said, I don't want a touring car. Like I love open wheelers. That's all I've raced. I don't even know if I can drive a touring mm. car. Like it's, it's a different beast again. And dad said, no, I think if you're going to keep racing, then that's just the only option. So I sort of thought, all right, let's, let's have a go then. If that's the only option, let's give it a go. And we sold the Raynard we had at the time. And with that money, it was pretty much a straight swap. We mm. bought a triple zero racing 86 from Chris Reeves. And that was probably the biggest step as far as progression in my career. That step we took there set me up for the next five or six years. Yep. You know, like that was pivotal in my career to continue racing. Because I, if I stayed in trying to chase the open wheeler trajectory, I don't think I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have gotten very far at all. You know, mm. I wouldn't have been able to prove myself. I wouldn't have received any drives anywhere because there was just, there wasn't the market for it. And yeah. it sucks that there wasn't, but it was just that simple. And in 2016, all we did was production touring, you know, and we were running at state level and I was opening a lot of eyes, which was the biggest thing. Mm. I opened a lot of eyes because in that little 86 production car, I'm, giving it to the Commodores. Yeah. I'm running around the outside. I'm doing crazy passes. Didn't you win the actual championship in that car? Essentially we, points? we, I almost did. I came second by, I think three points in yeah. that second year that I did it. But in the first year we won the, uh, endurance championship outright. Um, and we did a couple of like longer enduro races with Mark Kane. And mm. we, I think in, in our 86 at the Sydney four hour, with Mark Kane, we ended up fifth outright. And that was like huge because we're a class D car and we were fifth outright. And we were like, how cool is this at an Australian level? Yeah. And so we were opening a lot of eyes and, you know, I, I had a lot of a lot of people because as soon as you – the thing is, and what I've said to a few younger kids that I've helped mentor through the ranks now is what I set my goal for in racing was I wanted to be able to race – at a level that, you know, I was, I was always prepared to work full time as a sign rider, but I wanted to get to a level where I could race where it wasn't costing me any money. And so whether that was subsidized by sponsorship or if it was guys giving me free drives in their cars, that was my goal. And until I stepped into a production car, that goal was never going to happen because no one's going to trust you and throw you the keys to their car if all you've raced is an open wheeler. Like it just, they, they're a different beast. So they don't know yeah, if yeah. you can drive it or not. They don't know if you can drive it safely. And so racing production cars, we had heaps of fun, did some crazy maneuvers, didn't damage our car at all, which was the biggest thing. Mm. And from there, we gained a lot of respect in in racing in general because everyone knew that I was a fierce racer but I was always going to remain clean. I didn't want to hit, I didn't want to damage my car. Why would I want to waste money on fixing my car if I sent it up the inside and T-boned someone out of the way? Like it's not worth it to me. So yeah. I've always been in the philosophy of drive clean and drive hard, but don't don't hit someone out of the way just because you can't get past them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was that year in particular that 
Greg Nolan was helping us out with a couple of boys at some of the endurance events, changing wheels and stuff like that. And Greg was huge in helping us get to the 86 series because he had a few contacts and he, he was pushing hard. He said, you've got to get into the 86 series one way or another, sell that car, buy a car, get in, get in someone's car. You just, this kid has to get to 86 series level. And it was at that point in time that he was talking to Bruce Williams a lot. Um, Bruce was part of auto action and a big name in the motorsport world. And uh, he had the 86 that Ben Grice was running in the first, in 2016 was the first year of 86 series and Ben Grice was running Bruce's car. Uh, still with all the ACE and sponsorship all over it and things like that. Um, after that year, Bruce wanted to find someone else to drive the car and Greg was fundamental in pushing really hard to get Bruce to put me in the car. So Bruce is essentially a talent spotter for that car, was he, in a way? Pretty. Well, he owned the car and yeah. so he was like, he's he had the ACE and sponsorship. Yeah. So through auto action and his contacts that he had, he had the sponsorship for the car and he was – Effectively, yeah, he was out there looking for drivers to fill that seat. And, you know, to begin with, when we first started talking to Bruce, it was you need – like I want, he wanted us to drive the car, but he wanted us to bring a budget too. And we basically said to Greg Nolan, who was pushing so hard at the time, we are like, we don't have corporate money. We can't get sponsors that easily at, the, at this level because we, we haven't proved ourselves enough yet. Mm. Yeah, we've got a lot of really good close friends in motorsport, but no one that was jumping out of their skin to help us. So I still had some support from Toolforce because they continued that support from F4 to just follow me wherever I went, wanted to go. But then it was, it was in, it was at that point in time when I was talking to Bruce that you know, he was talking to a few other drivers and he said, you know, these other drivers have budget. So I want you in a car, but I need you to find the money. And I just, we had a go, but I, I, I basically said to Greg Nolan, I said, mate, I can't do this. I can't find the money. I'm trying, but I can't. So I don't think I'm going to get this drive. And Greg pushed really hard, spoke to Bruce and then said, put him in for a test. Do, get him to go to the media day and do a test in the car. And we went to the media day, did all the media for the 86 series. And we were pretty quick. Like we were up the front. And, you know, it was that point in time that Bruce looked after us and cut us a massive deal. And he said, you know, well, I'll let you run the car. I've got the sponsorship money covered, but you guys run the car as if you own it. So, you know, you do all the maintenance in between rounds, you run it yourselves at the track and I'll cover the bills for entries and tires and fuel and all that sort of stuff. So we sat there and went like, this is next level. Like this is our chance where we're in the, the best gig here. Like, you know, Bruce was part of like Bruce owned auto action. So we were getting heaps of coverage in the magazine and, you know, we, we, we had this awesome opportunity to race the 86 series. And, and I must admit, I still went into that year with no expectations. I've never set expectations on myself because I don't want to set myself up for failure. You know what yeah. I mean? So I'm just always flying by. I let my drive into the talking and I always just try my best, but, I didn't go into that year thinking I was going to do any good. Again, I said to myself, uh, if I can be in the top 10, I'll be pumped with that, you know, and that'll be an achievement. And when I turned up to Phillip Island for our first round, in practice, I was outside the top 20 and I was trying my hardest. And I went into dad and I was like, holy crap, I suck. Like I thought I would be better than this, but I suck. And dad was like, what are you doing so wrong, mate? Like what, what, 
what is it that is so bad about why are you outside the top 20? And like, I look like a fool because, yeah. you know, I'd been given this awesome opportunity in this awesome car and I was struggling to get inside the top 20. Like, it was a competitive field, don't get me wrong, but that was bad. And I was like, this is going to be hard. This is going to be a hard year. And then we sat down on the Friday night after practice and looked at all my footage. And it was actually my dad who turned around and said, you're overdriving. And I said, what? And he goes, Tomorrow in qualifying, when you go out on that track, I want you to drive hard. I don't want you to try. And I said, what do you mean, Dad? And he goes, look at how you're driving. Look at how you're attacking every apex. No wonder you're so slow. He said, you're not getting a run out of the corners anywhere. And I said, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, I can't go fast by going slow. Like, that's stupid. And so in qualifying, I was out there and I'm, again, running outside the top 20. Dad gets on the radio and dad goes, mate, you have one more flying lap. Slow down. Just slow down. Go do this lap as best as you can, but slow down. And I went, whatever. So I I did. I was like controlling myself at the apexes and I crossed the finish line and dad went, you P6. And I went, what? (laughs) P6. I was like, that's like, we lost it. We were like, how cool is this? And then Long story short, we went into that first race and oh, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm talking, we're like in a 40 car field. I'm in P6 and I'm going, right, let's just, you know, I'm expecting to just go shuffled back outside the top 20 again. And I'm racing with guys like Luffy. Yeah. He's, he's the well, was in that field too, I think. He uh, might have been yeah, that year, actually. Yeah. yeah. No, no, actually, he was the year before. Year he before. sold his car to Aaron Cameron. That's right. Yeah. So, so, but you still had a lot of con- competition. In oh, that yeah. Year. There was Cameron Hill, Aaron yeah. Seaton, Trent Grubel, uh, Tim Brook. Yeah. Uh, Cameron Crick, like all these. Luke King. Too. Yeah. Oh, no, Luke, Luke, King. Luke. Yeah. Luke was there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. Um, there was a lot of real fast dudes who have gone on to do great things. Mm. But I. Um, I got off the start and I got a pretty good start in this first race. And, you know, there was a bit of Biff and Barge and I actually raced myself to third mm. and I'm sitting in P3 and I'm going, how am I in P3? Like in the car, I'm going, like I'm gripping the steering wheel so tight going, how am I doing this? Like, And <laughs> I'd never been in that position in such a competitive field where like, I'm actually faster than the guys in front of me and yeah. I'm catching them and I'm passing them and I'm driving away. I'd never been in that position because I'd always been like, oh, you know, qualify fifth, finish fifth because you're just racing around the pace of the yeah, guys around you or, yeah. or you're struggling and you fall back through the field. But I was that I was that shark and I'm smelling blood and I'm going, I'm taking this. And I it was in that first race that, I caught up to the back of Cameron Hill and Aaron Seaton and I was all over the back of them, but they were having this top dice. Mm. And it was at that, that point there where um, Seaton, uh, Hill went wide at two to get the run off the corner and Seaton tried to fill the gap and hit him. Yeah. And then Cameron DNF'd. Or, no, he got a puncture actually. I think he came last, but he still finished the race. And I then started this battle with Seaton for the last two laps. And I, in that moment, I had no idea that Aaron Seaton had a penalty because yeah. he took he just took Cameron out. Yeah. So I had no idea that he had a penalty and I'm just racing for the win. Yeah. And I'm like trying the outside moves, trying the inside moves, and I'm all over him. And I cross the line second and I'm punching the air. I'm screaming in that right. car. Yeah. I have never been in so much adrenaline in my life. Yeah. 
And I got in and there's these awesome photos of dad and I like sprinting each other and jumping into each other's arms after the race because we were just in another planet. Like we, we were in another planet at that point in time. And that was just like, we just got a trophy at national level. And then they told us that Aaron had a penalty and we had effectively won the race. And we were like, did we just win our first national level race? Like this was, we were so gobsmacked. And it was at that point there that we went to the second race and I wanted to win. I wanted to cross that line first because I didn't get to do that in the first race. We got awarded the win, but I didn't cross the line first because Aaron got the penalty. So I was hungry and I have never driven a car so aggressively in my life trying to win. And we did. It was controlled aggression, but like I was having this, Awesome battle with Warren Luff, and he ended up being my driver coach when I went to Porsche. Really? Well, yeah. I was going to ask that. I was going to yeah. ask the so, Porsche but, thing. But, and we always talked about this battle at Phillip Island because it was so good. We gave each other so much racing room, but we're like over and under, and yeah, it was just so much fun. And we won that race, mm-hmm. and it was, again, that elation was just like more than the day before, and I didn't think that was possible. We came in, and we're punching the air. We, we were leading the championship after the first round, and I thought to myself, we got lucky. Phillip Island, I was fast, but we got lucky. Like, we got to try to keep this up. And then it was just the year just kept going stronger and stronger. We were always up the front. We were on the podium every single race. We were just consistent. Was just Consistency was our key. Cameron Hill was winning the races, but we were always there right behind him, and we were just collecting points, and we were collecting a lot of trophies too. Yeah. And then you get podium trophies for each race. Each race, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was it was awesome. It was such a good year. And and from those victories, my name started to become much more serious in the racing world. Like I went from this kid that just I was just another race kid, you know what I mean. But then I was like, oh, you're actually up the front. You're actually winning. Like you're getting podiums. You're leading the championship. Like this is this is you're you're good driver and I still didn't believe it I was like oh it could all turn like it could all turn and uh, you know I, I don't I want to win this championship but I didn't think I could wasn't there prize money involved too in the 50 flirting? grand for the win yeah. yeah so it was it was a good incentive yeah <laughs> but uh and Toyota they do an awesome job with yep. their uh like I feel like more prize money should be awarded in Australia mm. I know that it's hard because the economy doesn't really support that but when you look at America you can go and race even the entry level categories and you're getting even grand. small smaller <laughs> wind like wind bonuses and stuff like that they yeah. need that in australia because it keeps the young hard chargers who are struggling financially it keeps them on the grid yeah and it, it gives them a reason to win you're mm-hmm. not just going out there for a plastic cup you're going out there to to keep your career going if you get yeah. prize money you know what i mean so um but yeah the 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 best part about 2017 was when we were at Bathurst. Mm. So it's the Bathurst 1000 weekend. It is the biggest weekend in Australian motorsport. And Sunday is the biggest day of that weekend. And we went into Sunday morning. We had a car, we had a race. We had a couple podiums and a lot of battles for the win in the earlier races. I think we were awarded the win in race one after a penalty, uh, but we came across the line in second again. But I wanted a win at Bathurst because how cool would that be? Yeah. And so I sat there before the Sunday morning. We were like one of the first cars on the track and I sat there and we did the maths the night before for the championship. Mm. We still had one round to go at Newcastle and it's only a five-round championship and we did the maths and we said we worked out that if, if I won that race at Bathurst, 
we would win the championship before we even go to Newcastle. Mm. And so it was so much more of an incentive to win. Yeah. It was hard because I wanted to consider my championship. I didn't want to do anything stupid, but I was sitting there going like I could potentially win a race at Bathurst and a championship all in one. So it was so much pressure going into that race and I was so nervous. And uh, I remember we had a safety car and I had Ben Grice right behind me. And he, he and I had a bit of a rivalry that year because I was in his car from the year before and yada, yada. But I was so, like, worried. I, we had a one-lap dash. One lap sealed that race. Yeah. And I just put my head down and I just didn't look back. I was like, I've just got to put the best lap in of my life. If <laughs> I can do that, then this is ours. And I remember crossing the line on that Sunday morning. There is people Everywhere there is so many people on the mountain because it's Sunday morning of Bathurst One Thousand. Yeah, was it was it damp too when you went out because it's the morning or was it? Was it was it dewy. It was dewy, but the track was fast. I yeah. think I set my fastest time of that weekend on that last lap, and that shows how much I wanted it. Like I was, I was like hitting my marks everywhere because I needed that win, and I crossed the line, and I still get chills thinking about the feeling that I had that day mm. because. I have never punched my steering wheel so hard and screamed so much in the car that you can hear it on my GoPro. You can hear it on my onboard footage. Mm. And as soon as I cross the line, you know how you cross the line early on the straight at Bathurst and you've got that big long runs turn one? I've crossed the line. I've pulled over to the the pit wall. I saw my team and I'm like like, screaming at them. And then because dad was on the headset – you can actually hear me crying yeah. on the radio. Oh, sorry, on the GoPro. You can hear me crying on the radio and you can hear me say, um, because my dad's my idol, man. Yeah. Like he's he's everything to me. And especially when it comes to racing and because we were doing that year together, it meant so much more. And so you can actually hear me on the GoPro radioing into dad going, dad, I can't believe it. We did it. We, yeah. we actually did it. And it, we were speechless, man. Like it was, I still race now because I'm chasing that feeling again. And it's, 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 I can't put into words how I felt at that specific moment, but all I could, like, you can hear me like wailing on the GoPro going, dad, we did it. We did it. Like, how cool is this? And that is the thing that like at that point in time, that set up my career for the few years that I got to do it. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, that was like the turning point. Everyone was like, oh, this is serious. You just won a national championship. You won a very competitive national championship. Like, you know, you've got. That had to be one of the most competitive Toyota six series championships, I'd say, since. Looking looking at the field, like looking at the field and looking at where the drivers that were in at that year have gone on to go, like Kingy's in TCR, Cameron Hill's making his debut at the 1000, Aaron Seaton's making his debut at the 1000. These guys are all in Super 2. You know, there's other guys that have gone on to do great things in Carrera Cup and things like that. And, you know, I sort of just, yeah, our, our, our. big halt like we got we got a lot of years out of racing after t- after our success in the 86 series it set up this massive platform for me to continue racing at a serious national level and i i achieved my goal i set my goal at the start of my career i wanted to be a semi-professional racing car driver as i said i was always prepared that i was going to work full time mm. but i wanted to be a semi-professional racing car driver and i was there I was getting free drives in people's cars. I, I was racing and it wasn't costing heaps of money because we had good corporate support at that point in time. What were the free and drives you got? 
Uh, so I got uh, a drive in the Benson and Hedges Sierra at yep. Sandown and Phillip Island. I got to do a couple of uh, endurance events. I did a couple with Mark Griffith in a Toyota Echo. Uh, we did a couple of historic Formula Ford events for Don Holland. Yeah, that he was, was right. You raced yeah. me in the Swift. Yeah, yeah. How was he, that car, by the yeah, way, oh, from the radar? That was wicked. That Swift when I first jumped in it. So the reason Don got me in that car was to try to sell it. And he, yeah. he's ended up selling it to Nick McBride now. Yeah. Um, but when I first got in that car, it was very twitchy. You know, you probably know yourself. I Swift do. is a pretty twitchy <laughs> car. And I said to Don, I was like, this car is so fast in a straight line. I reckon if we can make it handle like a Reynard, this thing will be quick. Yeah. And at the time, I don't know if it still stands, but at the time I had the lap record at Eastern Creek in a historic car. You did. Yeah, it, was a, still do. it was a 39.9, I think it was. Yeah. It was the last race I ever did in that Reynard. So I had the lap record and and – Don wanted the Swift to have it because he wanted to be able to sell the car. And we went out to a couple of test days. I did some tire testing for Formula Ford actually when they were doing the shift yeah. from uh, Dunlop to Avon, I think it was. Yeah. We did a whole bunch of tire testing for Oh, them. I was there too, I think. I think I was one of the testers. Yeah, well. yeah and yeah. Um, so that was in Don's Swift again. But mm. we ended up developing that car to, to drive like a Reynard. Mm. And I did a test day at Easton Creek. And we were on old tires and I got within two tenths of my lap record on old tires. And I said to Don, I said, this track isn't very fast today. I, like there is more time in this car. There's more time in me. I said, enter us in the next race and we'll, we'll get the lap record. I reckon if it's a good enough weekend, we'll get that lap record and this car will have it. And I was expecting that car to be like a low 39. Like it was a fast car uh, and Don had actually entered a race meeting for us to do. And I was so excited for it because I wanted to beat my lap record again and I wanted to make it a, a faster time. Mm. And then Don sold the car not long before that event. So I was like, oh no. <laughs> but, but did, did Nick McBride buy it just before it? He, it he bought the car, but then he didn't race it till the Phillip Island Classic this year, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's but he was time. fast. He was right up the front. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I was fast before 2020 as well. I yeah. got up to fourth. And that those, car is th such an immaculate those car. Those Swifts are so fast in a straight line because they're just like this little slippery little snake. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you look at the Reynards and they've got these big parachutes for side pods and then the Swift and the Van Diemen's are so petite. Yeah, well, we always get that. The Swifts get caught up because of that little aero thing, that little like cape at the back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's they're, yeah. They're a bit hesitant with some of the competitors in that. But. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> no, it was um, – so we were at a level where we were pretty much semi-professional, you know, like we were getting yeah. some really awesome drives and, you know, I did a couple six hours and it was just turn up and drive, not paying to be there or anything. And it was, uh, it was awesome. Like I was in the best place in my life at that point in time. I was like, you know, I've, I've done it. I'm here. And I can't see at that point in time, I couldn't see how anything could change. I couldn't see how anything could go wrong. You know, I was like, I had so much confidence in my ability and you know, where we could take our career. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was a shame it all unfolded like it did. But at that point in time, I did feel like, We'd done it. Did you have at that point sponsors that were loyal, like people that you had that you'd built up from all those achievements so then they jumped on board? Yeah, definitely. I had like, so after the 86 series, we jumped into Porsche with McElroy. Yeah. And uh, it was a big financial step to go from racing production cars to a Porsche. And I sat there at the start of the year going, I don't know, I don't know how to raise that much money. Because, you know, when you race and it's only costing you like maybe $100,000 a year, you divide that up and you go, oh, I'll sell a spot for 25 and 10 and 5 and you just 
you gather all this money up and then you somehow make it work. Um, but when I was looking at like a couple hundred thousand dollars, I was like, how do you do that? How do you walk up to someone and go, can you please give me a hundred thousand dollars? Like that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's why Brooke asked that. Cause I was explaining to her the other yeah, day. Yeah. Well, it's not just that we're doing that here with the podcast. Yeah. We yeah. understand it. It's, I find it, it it's hard. It's, it's not hard. An easy thing. It yeah. is hard to ask people for money. And yeah. that was the thing I, I always struggled with cause I felt guilty about it in a way. Cause I'm like, you know, you're, you're literally like, you're not the only one, man. Yeah. Like it's hard, <laughs> but you no, know, I, I, the year in the Porsche was so how that was funded was a couple of really loyal sponsors, mm. but then actually a couple of silent backers, which are businessmen who just want to jump on board and and you know give you twenty grand or twenty five thousand dollars and and they don't want a logo on the car, they just want to be a part of your program. And so I was lucky enough to secure a couple of those, and uh, even with all of that support, halfway through the year in. Porsche in 2018, I was out of money Mm. and it was a scary thought because at that time I was a young kid and I still, I think I still owed the team about $20,000 and I was like, if I continue to race, that figure is going to get bigger and I have no idea how I'm going to pay off 20 grand as it is. Yeah. And then I pulled out of the championship and we were just going to sit there and What you said at that point? Uh, no, we'd had a few bad runs. We had, I'd been taken off the track at the start of the race weekends and then I'd have to fight my way back from the, from the back to the front. So our outright position in the championship was pretty average, but we were fast. We were like up there and we had some really good results. We were racing with guys like Cooper Murray, Max Vidal, uh, Simon Fallon. Um, we were all like, you know, dicing and it was a great championship to be a part of. And it was, um, at, it was after Phillip Island, which was our third round. I got a podium for the weekend and yeah, I was in heaps of debt and I was like, we're done. You know, I put it up on Facebook that I spoke to the team and said, you know, I'm sorry, I've tried everything, but we're out. Mm. Um, and I was going to, I was trying to set up a payment plan to pay off this debt that I was in. And then it just so happened that uh, I got bailed out and mm. I was so lucky. I, I to this day, Rob Woods, mm. who now has TechWorks. Yep. Uh, Rob Woods was racing a Porsche at the time in Pro Am in mm. the same championship, and he'd had a pretty nasty shunt at Eastern Creek and twisted his car up pretty good and and hurt himself. So he was out for the rest of the year. And I just we passed tracks at mm. Eastern Creek, and I just said to him, like we just looked at each other and went, "Hey, mate, how you going?" Mm. And then we just kept walking. And that was it. We didn't stop and talk. That was just the only time we'd spoken to each other. And Rob had seen my post on Facebook about how we were out for the year and that, you know, I was devastated and I was really sorry to all my sponsors for being loyal to me, but I couldn't fulfill the rest of the the obligations that year. And Rob actually called up Andy McElray and, and said, what's the story with Jimmy? And then basically said, can you get Jimmy to call me? And I called him and he said, look, uh, my car's not going to be up at Queensland Raceway. And, and he had Platinum Nightclub up there at the mm. time. And he said, I, I, I feel for you. Like, I'm, I'm sorry to see that you're struggling to get through. So how about I get you to Queensland Raceway? And I was almost in tears. Mm. I was like, oh, thank you so much. And he, he got us to Queensland Raceway and I was able to get a, a little bit of help to try to, like, get that debt cleared. And then... Whilst we were at Queensland Raceway, we had two rounds left to go and uh, spoke to the two other Pro-Am teammates I had at the time, which was Brett Bolton and Michael Hovey. And 
said to them my position. I was like, you know, I, I, I'd love to finish the year off with you guys because I'm having such a great time with you, but I just can't. And they struck a deal with me that, that said, if you can get yourself to round five, we will split the cost to get you to round six. And this, this was how my career was just like working out. It was just like, I was getting so lucky with these guys helping me out. And, and I'm still forever grateful for them giving me that opportunity because without them, it wouldn't have happened. Mm. Uh, so Rob helped me out again to get to round five. And then Michael and Brett helped me out with round six and we got to complete the championship. And I am so grateful for that because I can now say that we, we did fulfill all those obligations. We finished that year and we finished it with some great results. We clean swept the last round at Eastern Creek with wins and I wanted to continue the Porsche pyramid. Mm. I wanted to just jump straight into Carrera Cup, but it was half a million dollars and I was just like, you know, it's another step up from what I was paying for Cup Challenge and I just like, I I wanted it so bad, I just didn't know how to do it. Mm. I didn't have the means myself to be able to raise that sort of money and and when I see young kids doing that, whether they have managers or not, the kids that do it without managers and the kids that just do it with the hard yards, oh man, I give them the biggest props because it is hard. It's so hard to to secure a, that sort of money. Yeah. And they there are there are kids that can do it and power to them because they are awesome at what yeah. they do. Luke King's really good at corporate sponsorship yeah he does a really great job with his marketing and and uh like you know i've spoken to luke a couple times about how he does it and it blows me away like he works hard and it shows because he's he's got a lot of good sponsors on board and um he's just a real nice guy so uh, but yeah it's hard it's hard like i i left that year in porsche and i didn't really know what to do with myself because mm. I, I I wanted to keep racing, but I just knew that it was going to be un, unaffordable. And I, um, it was when I started doing a couple of those races in that Ford Sierra mm. that uh, Kevin Bartlett was actually at the one at Sandown. And we went out there and we got the lap record and won all the week races that weekend. And it was a, it was awesome. Like everyone was talking about it because they were finally seeing the Sierras get raced fast again and everyone loved that event because historic racing is cool like yeah. it's it is I cool i love to do it when i can yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, I still love to do it if i could like yeah. if someone had a car and said hey come and do this i'd be like yes yeah. because i love historic racing Paul Liston is egging me every time i race a state meet because i was telling you off air that i just do five races a year essentially yeah. at the moment he's egging me to do state race like historic racing it is the best weekend yeah and everyone that's there is passionate they love it the cars are cool Anyway, we did that race in the Sierra and Kevin Bartlett was there and, and it was an S5000 was about to kick off. Mm. And uh, he said, Jimmy, you should look at S5000. And I didn't know if there was corporate support for it yet. So I went, yeah, maybe I should. And at the time uh, I was working alongside Kerry McMahon because I was racing mm. his Sierra and he he and I said, yeah, okay, well, they had a media day for S5000 out at Eastern Creek and we said, let's check it out. Let's just go have a look. And we went out there and checked the cars out. And it just so happened that at that same day, TCR was doing their media launch day as well. Mm. So while we were there, we were checking the S5000 out. We're like, oh, yeah, this is pretty cool. Like We were looking at doing S5000. And then we just thought, why don't we wander up and have a look at these TCR cars and see what they're all about? And when we got up there, we had a look at them and uh, we were like, this seems like a pretty good 
like a pretty good setup. You know, yeah, like it's yeah. it's it's a global again a global category. Uh, they reckon it'll go good in the media. Like I think that there's there's weight here in this category. And at that point in time, we were going to run it as a privateer again. We were going to use Kerry's truck and his boys and his infrastructure, and we were actually going to run a privateer TCR. I didn't team. actually know that. Yeah, so it was almost signed, sealed, and delivered. Like yeah. we were almost. We, we were talking to people about purchasing a car. Uh, we were going to get, you know, a couple people to help buy the car and then we were going to find the sponsors and we had Was John Herman's going to crew for you for that with that car? Or? No. No. No, okay. no. We had uh, – at that point in time, it was going to be myself, Dad, Kerry, uh, and he had Nigel Bowling. Yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah. then we were going to do it with one of Kerry's mechanics at the time, Rod. Mm. Um, so we were – as I said, this was almost science and delivered. We'd almost organized the purchase of the car and it was all looking really positive. And then when we were at that day, we sat down for lunch and uh, Gary and Barry Rogers sat on the same table, sort of said, oh, you know, we started talking, what are you doing here? Oh, yeah, checking this out and whatnot. And then they got wind that we were looking at mm-hmm. buying a car and running it ourselves and they called up Kerry and because Kerry was kind of acting as a bit of a, negotiator for me so he was talking to people and trying to organize things for me and they had said you need to come down and have a meeting with us so we flew down to melbourne went and met barry and gary and they said we want to get you in our team for tcr and when that happened it kind of just like all the ideas we had of running as a privateer were squashed because we thought well look we probably can't do it as competitively as we should be able to anyway so yeah we um signed on to run with grm and then it was just about finding the corporate sponsorship to do that and in the alpha romeo weren't you yeah yeah Yeah. so we were in the alpha and we had the sponsorship pretty much sorted uh we had a few more dollars and cents to sort out but um yeah we had uh had that sorted and we were again we were the first driver to sign up to tcr so i was the first driver in f4 and then i was the first driver in tcr (laughs) so it was a bit of a running theme that we kind of just jumped in straight away we're like yeah here we are jimmy does it and everyone else does it yeah (laughs) so the cars um, join yeah we we uh joined up and um we we were announced for the the inaugural year and it was super exciting. And as they started announcing more drivers like James Moffat and, you know, Dalberto and all these ex-supercar drivers, I was like, this is going to be cool. Like mm. this is, aside from supercars, this is like one of the top-notch categories in the country. Like this is going to be massive. And there was a lot of hype around it for the first year and I was, um, I was so excited. Like I aligned myself with at the time of V8 Supercars team in GRM <laughs> and uh, everyone knows and loves the team and they think that Barry and Gary are great. And mm. I was thinking, you know, this is the next step for me. Like this is the next big serious step that I'm taking in my career. Like, you know, I, I, at that point I was still classing it as like a semi-professional thing and I was racing a lot, racing all over the place in all different cars. Mm. And and then – Were you aiming for a Super 2 drive? By that point, I was or just, just aiming, for just, I was just finished TCR. I was just aiming for whatever I could get. At that point in time, when I joined, when once the Porsche dreams had sort of been squished because I couldn't afford it, and we were focusing on TCR being more cost effective at the time, is what we were sold at. Sold it as. I then set myself the the goal of nailing TCR so that we could get to WTCR and mm. go and race Europe at, at a touring car level, uh, because then you know that could open the gates for you know world endurance championship drives and all that sort of thing. So that was kind of the way I shifted my thought process. Even if it wasn't Europe, you could go to America and race TCR. You could go to Asia and race TCR. You know, there's 
the TCR championships were everywhere. Mm. And so um, I thought this was the best thing that I could do for myself in my career. But it just it's, – it's hard to talk about because I sat there and thought that I'd made it and I thought that this was going to be the best thing in my life as far as racing is concerned. But it just – that one year did more damage to my career than I could have ever imagined. Mm. And it was it was super tough. Like mm. it was hard because I – Can you explain on it? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of the words to put it into because like it's been a roller coaster emotionally for me since mm. the start of 2019. We joined the, the team and, yeah, we struggled with the car because obviously I'd never driven a front-wheel drive car. Mm. And so I jumped in the car and, and – to me, characteristically, the car felt horrible to drive. It was snapping in the rear everywhere and super really like twitchy. Really fragile. Yeah, yeah, like I was turning into the corners after getting tire temperature up. I'm turning into the corners and the rear end's just snapping on me. Yeah, and right. I was like, I don't know. Like, I, And at the time, I hadn't been allocated an engineer and I was just getting a different mechanic each time I went to the racetrack. So yeah. there was no real continuity there. There was no foundation to, behind your team. Yeah, no, it was really hard because I, I turned up to the first round at Eastern Creek, which was our home event, and, you know, no one had really given me much information from the team on the lead-up to the event, and I turned up just expecting to be introduced at the first round because everything was quite rushed. Yeah. But I'm expecting to get there and go, oh, this is your engineer, this is your mechanic, yeah, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, because it's an expensive category. Yeah. yeah, and so I've turned up to the first round and uh, I walked up to my car, which was in the garage, and someone was like, oh, this is your mechanic, and I said, hey, mate, how you going? And sort of like walking around, I'm like, Is that it? I don't <laughs> know if I have, have an engineer this weekend. Yeah. And then I asked them and they said, oh, no, no, not this weekend. So that's when Kerry quickly got on to Nigel and yeah. said, Nigel, can you come out this weekend? And so yeah. at least we have an engineer. Yeah. And so Nigel said yes and came out and gave us a hand. And it was, it was frustrating because I was in such a competitive category, but I felt like I just didn't have the support around me that I needed. Um, mm. And that's where it gets difficult to talk about because I don't want to. I don't want to shine a negative light on anyone in particular. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I just kind of felt like I was a little bit hard done by. Because you've proven yourself in the two eighty six series, so I know where you're coming from. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you're wanting and that done, momentum I, to follow I've done through. well in Porsches as well. Like yeah. we were winning races there and racing against some really great drivers. And I just thought that with work, I could be competitive in TCR as well. Maybe not from the outset because I'd never driven a front-wheel drive car, but I thought with work I could be, and I believed that. It was the first time that I was sort of starting to believe in myself. And I yeah, I didn't have an engineer at the first round, and we sort of had average results because there was problems with the car. It wasn't coming out of the corners. What we didn't realise was there was diff torque ratios that we needed to change, and you know we, we worked through some of them, but I think my best result that weekend was I started last because in the first race I got a puncture because the tyre pressures were wrong at the start of the race. And then in the second race I started from the rear and I got up into a top 10 position, which we were pretty pumped on, but I had terrible tyre life. So we still hadn't worked the pressures out obviously. And then in the last race I did the same start procedure that I'd done the other two times, but it stalled on the grid because these cars have like a fancy launch control system and the way that it was written and like it was written in the manual in Italian and then converted to English. So mm. it was a little bit broken. And so again, without having someone to sit there and go through it with me at the start of the season, like we should have, I sort of was 
reading it myself and trying to work it out. And then I asked a couple of questions and we kind of sort of tried to, I guess, work it out from that. <laughs> and yeah. so we stalled on the grid and I got collected up the bum and we DNF'd that race. So you can imagine we walked out of Eastern Creek pretty oh. dejected and yeah. pretty bummed because we had a flat tire in one race from the back of the field to top 10 in second race and then DNF the last race. And so, didn't have an engineer at the start of the weekend. Yeah, so yeah. we were pretty bummed about that. And then we went down to the next round at Phillip Island and I expected because there was more time in between events that maybe we'd turn up and there'd be a bit more of a structure there. So I turned up and, again, different mechanics were on the car and nothing wrong with the mechanics that they were giving us. They were great. They were good blokes. But, again, the engineer was decided on the the Thursday or Friday of when we were at Phillip Island and it just so happened that Tim Macro was there testing the S5000. So Tim was kind of just tossed the job to look after me for the weekend. And yeah, Tim's right. a great bloke and yeah. he's a good engineer. But even he said to me, he goes like, you know, we aren't working together for the full year. So I'm just like, a, he was just trying to help me out. And I was, yeah. I was lucky he was there because he did help me a lot. But I just wanted continuity in such a competitive category. I just wanted continuity with a consistent race engineer for the start. The start. And at Phillip Island, we uh, weren't that far off the pace. Um, and in the first race, I was always better at racing the car than I was at qualifying it. Um, but in the race, I was battling with Heimgartner and Bridie for a podium. Mm. And those two tangled. I had nowhere to go and I got collected and I DNF'd that race. So again... I've DNF'd another race and I'm starting at the back and I'm so over it at this point because I was like, I'm finally up the front. The car's still a dog to drive, mm. but I'm finally up the front and I'm, I'm battling for a podium. And we started the second race that weekend last and I fought my way up to a top 10 and I thought, hey, that's pretty good from starting nowhere. And then in the last race, I fought my way up to be battling with Rulo, I think it was, and we were, again, we were close to a podium. So... I've progressed through from the back again and I just I tried to stay on the outside through turn one of Rulo and I just ran out of racetrack. You know, he kind of got a bit of understeering. I didn't want to touch him mid-corner so I sort of dropped two wheels and then I fell off the track. So another crap result. And at this point, I walked out of Phillip Island pretty in a dark place. Like I was not happy. And then I, I honestly wanted continuity and I wanted help because I didn't know – what I was doing in those cars. And I didn't know if it was me or if it was the car. I just wanted help. That's all I wanted. And so we went to the bend and I finally had an engineer. Mm. They finally found me an engineer and it was looking like it was going to be, you know, a strong start to a good relationship. And the bend, the bend was hard because the rain, the, the, the weekend, the weekend started on Friday and it was wet. So we were all trying to find our feet and it was wet and it was really hard to drive. And we then went into qualifying and it was half wet, half dry. And we went into race one kind of unknown to what it was going to be like dry. And I qualified nowhere, but then I think I was up in the top five position in race one and it was looking pretty good. And then I just made a little little mistake because I was overdriving. I was trying to make up for all the time that I'd lost at the start of the year and I was overdriving myself Yeah, and fell off the track. I think we finished like, top 10 or something in that first race race two, uh another good start and i battled my way up into a top five position and and it was looking like a i was going to finish in the top five position and set myself up for a good last race and again just another overdriving moment and i had a brain fart and dropped two wheels and then got collected by rulo because he had nowhere to go and the car was out for the weekend so you can see the theme here lots of dnfs lots of 
off-track experiences and me just sitting there not knowing how or why to fix the problem. And I kept saying that the car felt like it was just not right. And no one, everyone, every time I say that, everyone's like, it's just a front-wheel drive car. You've got to drive it different. I was like, yeah, that's probably part of it, but I just needed someone to take me seriously. And it was after that event that um, my whole career pretty much turned upside down. So, so what happened was I got a call and the call basically said, you know, I think we should probably take some time to sit out and think about what you're doing. So we will sit out of Queensland Raceway and we'll get back, get you back in the car at Winton. Mm. And I said, oh, I don't, if that's what you think, then, you know, you, you're the boss. <laughs> I'll listen to you. And uh, that was the last I heard. And then I was just minding my own business. Yeah. And I think it was the week before the Queensland event, I woke up on a Sunday morning and my phone had about 150 messages on it. Yeah. And I was like, what's going on? Yeah. And I opened up Facebook and my face was all over it. And it was all this stuff about how I'd been benched and kicked out of my drive for underperforming and replaced by Jordan Cox. It was it just blindsided me completely that that's what was happening. And so the, I they didn't give you any indication, did they? Not that I was being replaced. Yeah. No. It was and I was paying to be there. That was the thing. Yeah. And so it was it was hard because well, I didn't know what to do, you know? Yeah. Like I sat there and I felt like I'd been hard done by, but what do you do in that situation? Like I can't turn around and say I was hard done by because then you just look like, you know, a sore loser or you look like, you know, a spoiled brat. And you, you know, like everyone was commenting on all these posts saying like, you know, well, you know, if you're getting paid to be there, you got to perform. And I'm like, I'm not paying. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not getting paid. Like yeah. I'm paying, you know, like, and the way the story was written basically just made me look like I was talentless and yeah. that I was no good. And my team had lost full faith in me and, and it was, it was hard because how do you come back from that? How do you even defend yourself in that situation? Like I, I couldn't. Yeah. No one was going to believe me. You were portrayed as like essentially the bad guy. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was talentless, mm. effectively. Even after winning Porsches and Toyotas. Yeah, and, and so I, I, I sat there and and I was lost for words. I was like, what, what do I do? Like I didn't know what to do. And obviously I cut ties with the team. Like I wasn't going to go back and race with them again because I felt betrayed. Like mm. I felt blindsided and betrayed. It was gut wrenching because all I, like I'd spent so much time, so much effort building a career from 2012, and it just took that one moment to bring that all undone, and it turned my career on its head. I couldn't open up Facebook without there being a message going, you know, what's going on? Like, oh, you know, you probably should have done a better job. People just bad mouthing my name and. Still to this day, I just didn't feel like I got to prove myself, you know? Like I just kind of feel like it was – it was uh, I was dealt a bit of a raw card and, and, you know, I just had to cop it on the chin, you know, cop it on the chin and move on because otherwise you just get caught up in it. But I tell you what, like I couldn't even go race my state series car. I couldn't even go race my Evo 10 at a state level without – multiple people coming up to me over that weekend going, so what actually happened, mate? Like, you know, talk to me about it. I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. I, like, it's ruined my life. It's ruined my career. It's ruined my life. Like, you know, I don't want to talk about it. I don't, I'm here to race my Evo because I'm here to try to have fun. Mm. Like, you know, it's, and that was simple as that. There was a time post the TCR fallout where, like, I was in a very bad place, like mentally. Like I lost myself, which is understandable now that I look back on it because I was at a level, like I'd made it in my head. I'd made it. I was there. I was racing 
almost every weekend in all sorts of cars and I was having fun doing it and I was doing a great job. So to me, I'd made it. And then my world had been stripped from underneath me, you know, yeah. like I, I, I wasn't getting any drives. No one was calling me. No, no one wanted to sponsor me. No one, all this bad publicity around me, it, it hurt me more than I thought it would. And the recovery process from that has been tricky. That's still, I'd still say that I suffer from it. Like when I try to move on from it and, you know, try to wheel and deal another drive or somewhere like, it would obviously have an impact to a degree, but I'm still super lucky. Like I've got a couple really good sponsors now and, you know, I've, I've, I'm just so grateful that there is, there, there is so many people that stayed on my side throughout that whole saga, whether it be on social media, privately at the racetrack, there are so many people that I didn't even need to say anything. They just knew. They knew what went down. They knew what happened and they felt for me. And so they stayed true to me and they stayed there to support me. And I thank every single person that's been like that because I was in a really bad place. I didn't think I was ever going to race again. I didn't, I was ready to sell everything. I was ready to call it quits and go, you know, I, I am talentless. I started to believe it. I was like, I'm talentless. I can't do this anymore. Like they were right. Everyone thinks I suck. Why am I bothering? Like, how do you rebuild from that? You know, like it was, it was so hard and you know, there was so many people that supported me through it. And, and now I've still got like a, a couple of really good sponsors and I hope I still have hope that somehow we can strike a miracle and get back to not even back to that level, but just back to like national serious national level racing, whether it be Trans Am, you know, get a foray in a Porsche or something like I still have that goal. I still want to be that, but I, my name was so tainted from that one event that it's been hard to even see that as a reality. You know what I mean? Like it, it hurt me a lot. Yeah. I, I don't typically talk about it too much because again, it's like, you know, I just never thought anyone would believe me. Yeah. I mean, like I, I still get to race now and you know, I'm still doing national level in my Evo 10 and still having a lot of fun. But if I had to answer the question, honestly, like, am I satisfied where I am at the moment? No, I'm not because how can you be satisfied where you're racing when you were on the other side of the paddock? I go to I go to those events now and at Queensland Raceway last weekend, I stood there and I did a 360 and I said, I've pretty much been a part of every single category here. I've been over there in TCR. I've done some GT stuff in GT4. I've been over there in the Porsches. Been down there in the Trans Ams. Mm. Like I'd, I'd been everywhere in that paddock, but I'm not satisfied with where I am. And I feel like we have unfinished business in some of those categories i'd love to get back there and i'd love to prove myself but i'd love to prove myself fairly i'd love to i'd love to be given a shot where i can prove myself and i've got the equipment and i've got the team and i've got the support network around me to actually do it properly basically be a you know an end chapter to my career i i didn't want it to end like it did and i don't think it's over Mm. but uh the recovery process has been hard still trying to work out how to take that next step financially. And yeah, as I said, I've got some really great sponsors on board this year and and they're just supporting me and helping me support the Kids with Cancer Foundation. And that's where a lot of my focus goes to with racing now. Like I was in such a negative place with all of that social media and all of that 
I just wanted something positive to look at. And the kids with cancer and, and helping out the families and helping out the kids and, and getting them to the race events, seeing their big smiles, seeing how excited they get, even though it's an Evo 10 production touring car, still a race car. So getting them out there and getting them in there and getting them involved, that was the positivity that I needed back in my racing to make it worthwhile to keep doing it. And, you know, I, I'm super grateful that the Kids With Cancer has, has allowed me to be an ambassador for them. Uh, we've been building this program year after year and I'm so grateful that I can give back. Spending so many years racing essentially selfishly because you're spending so much of other people's money and so much time and effort goes into yourself. It was just great that I could finally do it and feel like I'm giving back to someone else. And that's where I get my fulfillment in racing at the moment. Well, Jimmy, before we end this podcast, which has been a great podcast, I want to give you my one and only new segment that I've never brought to the podcast, hopefully to cheer you up a bit. Oh, after, yeah. <laughs> after, after your segment there, which is great to hear about the Cancer Foundation. And you can even donate this prize to them if you, if you, decide, to, if you decide to get it. Yeah. There's a mixture with this Fast Five though, right? Yep. If you get five correct, you'll get an amazing prize, man. Like you. Oh no, I didn't know I was getting a quiz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you could you could get like literally you could get like a bottle of beer, some chocolate, like lint chocolate, nice chocolate. Yeah. Or you could get like a if you if you don't get all these right, you get like the bottom of the barrel prize. Yeah. Right. So no pressure on you. Yeah. You've got to get these five answers correct. I'm nervous. Are you nervous? Yeah. I don't even know what the quiz could be about. I know. I know. I know. But lucky for lucky for these fans, they're going to hear it. And if they if they like your because you're the first guest of season two, if they like it, I'll continue the fast five. Yeah. Well, I might make a fool of myself here, but we'll give it uh, a go. All right. <laughs> let's give the fast five a go to end the podcast. So yeah. what is it? You just ask me five questions, and I got to do yep. my best. You got to do your best. All right. The first question is, and you should probably get this one. Who was, who is the only two Formula One world champions to win seven championships? Oh, Michael Schumacher and Lewis Hamilton. Correct. Okay. You're off to a great start. Okay. Question two. How many entries are in the Bathurst 1000 this year? Oh, that's a hard one. Because <laughs> one of them's not official yet, is it? <laughs> that, this is what, exactly what I said to Brooke before. But it does count because they I, have highlighted it I have on their to website. Go 27? Wrong. Oh, oh no. You've, what was it? 29. Oh, wow. I'm way off. Oh, okay. You, you're right. Only you, by two. Only uh, by two. Only <laughs> by two. Only by two. Question three Who won the Daytona 500 in 2022? 2022. This year. This year. Who won the Daytona? 500 this year. Was it Chase Elliott? No, wrong again. Oh, oh no. No. <laughs> Who was it? Austin Sindrick in the Penske. Oh, that's right. Yes. I was actually stoked <laughs> for him too. How did I forget that? <laughs> oh, no. So you're heading towards oh. a bogey prize at the moment. I got, I got one right. I'm happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How many races has Aussie well, – everyone counts him as an Aussie, but he's actually a Kiwi. Scott McLaughlin won this year in the IndyCar Series. I know it's either two or three. I want to say two. You want to go with two? Yeah. Correct. Oh, yes. Two out of five. Two out of five. (laughs) All right. The last one is, and you have raced Porsche Cup before and you've raced Formula Ford. Who are the only two Porsche Cup teams to win a Formula Ford championship in Formula Ford Australia? So who are the only Porsche Cup teams to win a Formula Ford championship? Sonic. One. How many is there? There's Two. two teams that have done it. 
And you've raced one of them. Sonic and BRM? Wrong. Oh, who was the other one? It was Cameron Hill, CHE Racing. Oh, of course. Oh, oh, no. No. So oh, no. I go into the bag of the tricks, Everyone the bag of the Dan tricks. Everyone is looking into his bag. It's a bit of a shame that the camera turned off here, but yeah, Brooke oh, can we'll, ex- we'll, we'll explain what Brooke Dan's can about expl- to hand over. Brooke can explain what you're going to get. It's a million dollars. Oh. It's a, is that a dragon egg? It's a, it's a drag, it's a fossil kit. A fossil kit. kit. Yeah, there we go. Dug them out. It's good for your kids. So yeah. that, that's a positive. That's a positive. Look, it's a dino my world. My five-year-old is going to love that. Dig them out. Your five-year-old's going to dig out a fossil dinosaur. <laughs> She's going to love that. You're going to be excited that you lost. <laughs> yeah. So there you How go. How cool is that? <laughs> You're right that you got two out of five. So that's, that's oh, a yeah. positive. Mate, it could have been worse. <laughs> what are the positives? I know. I hate trivia. <laughs> trust me. There's that's some, cool. There's She's going to love that. Oh, You don't want to know what else was in that bag. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the Dino World Fossil Kit. That's sweet. Yeah. So, dude, I'm really appreciative that you came on this podcast for um, season two, man. And um, hopefully in other seasons we'll get you back on here. Yeah. And you can you can update us at where you're at. Update us at where you're at. Yeah, hopefully. Look, thank you so much for having me on. I know we've been racing together since 2013, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, it's a long time. We've known each other for a long time and spent a lot of time talking at the racetrack, but it was cool to do it in front of some microphones. Yeah, dude, I'm mad, Ken, that you came on and that I'm, I'm stoked that you were like my season one guest, like my open episode. Yeah, so. yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm very grateful and, and I love the podcast and I think what you guys are doing here is awesome and it's cool to, you know, shine some light on various drivers in the community. So what you're doing is great. Cheers. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of On the Couch with Hooli. Make sure to subscribe to our show so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. And to help us grow, please leave a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. For extra content, check out our YouTube and social channels. You can find all the links in the show notes. See you next week.